Podcast Starts. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to And Now the Podcast Starts. I'm TD Velasquez, but you can call me Dan. And here is my wonderful co-host, Kirsty Warrow. Hello, Kirsty. Hi. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Uh yeah, I'm all right. It's it's been an interesting week. It's it's been nice to have the podcast live. Um, we've had some nice feedback. We've had listeners across the world, um, which is uh, slightly terrifying. Hello, everybody. Wow. Thank Hi. you very much for listening. Yeah, thank you. It's good to speak to you again, Kirsty. How's your week been? Um, good. I mean, yesterday uh, we had no internet and no um, mobile phone signal for the afternoon. So that was the very definition of contemporary horror, I feel. Right. Oh, dear. Yeah, that sounds very frightening. But it's back now, so <laughs> that's good. Oh, well, uh, yeah, let's hope that that situation remains the same. I, I, It's strange, isn't it? Whenever the internet cuts out, you feel like you've lost an arm. And it's annoying enough in normal times, but at the moment, when there's no guarantee that things like that could be fixed quickly, mm. um, the the idea of losing it is um, is pretty petrifying. Oh well, yes. so yeah. I'm very mm. glad uh, that you're back online. Not least because it means I can speak to you. Um, yeah, I mean that's a good thing. We can do this. I was worried that we would not be able to do this when we scheduled. So that's. Yes, yes. That's good. Um, no, that's great. So today uh, we have hopefully a nice treat for the listener, a special episode which I've been working on for literally years, um, all <laughs> about the, the 1982 film Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Which I have not seen. <laughs> You've never seen Halloween 3? No. Wow, okay. No, I'm, yeah, I'm not a huge Halloween fan. I think I've seen the first one. I might have seen a later one. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, why, Dan? This <laughs> 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 may be a good question. Uh, why? Because like, yeah. this, is, this why? is the third one? Uh, this it is the is. third one, right? It is the third film in the Halloween movie series. But it completely sounds on its own. You could enjoy it as a viewer without having seen the previous two films. It's a self-contained narrative. Likewise, this podcast isn't the first discussion that Howard and I have recorded about a Halloween film. In 2018, we did upload to YouTube discussions about Halloween and Halloween 2. So this is the third of those. But again, it's an unconnected film, although if you had listened to the previous podcasts, you might get some continuity and context about some of the behind-the-scenes players who worked on all three of the movies and how we feel about their work. So therefore, if you do want to check out those, you can find them in the same place that you found this podcast. I've uploaded them to this podcast feed just this week, so you can listen to all three, or you can just listen to this one, it, it works either way. The reason we did record those podcasts back in 2018 was because in that year we just said to ourselves, we'll record episodes about every single Halloween film. <laughs> that, that seems like a Herculean task. Yes, I, in a way I think maybe part of it was just to see if we could do it. Because that's like 10 films then. It's now 11 films. But I suppose the thing is, we're Halloween fans, Howard and I. We love that film, the original 1978 film, so much. And we didn't really think of ourselves as fans of the sequels. And in fact, in 2018, there's this, this new movie coming along which is pitching itself as a sequel only to the original. Um, so in a way, we could disregard all the sequels 
But I came to thinking that, well, actually, we've seen all the sequels. We've invested time and thought in all of them. So we are fans of the whole franchise, really. And also I was becoming aware that, you know, each of those sequels, or some of them, have a devoted fan following of their own. So they deserve to be looked at in a fresh way. And I just wanted to explore that with Howard. And, you know, we also got the help of a number of special guests who came to talk to us about them as well. Was there a reason why it didn't, as in it doesn't fit in the kind of narrative world of the rest of them? Halloween 3, um, well, basically, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who produced and wrote both of the previous movies, had creative control of Halloween 3, but they wanted to move the series in a different direction. So they hired a different writer and a different director to take over the movie and to craft a standalone, unconnected story which would be thematically connected to the earlier movies because it was still about Halloween, but it had no narrative connection to them. And the idea then would be that if that film was a success, every subsequent Halloween film would be a different standalone story on the theme of Halloween by a different writer and director team. Unfortunately, for reasons that we'll go into in the main discussion, Halloween 3 was not a huge success. So when subsequent sequels did eventually appear, they went back to the character of Michael Myers, who had been the focus of Halloween and Halloween 2, and in fact has remained the focus of every single film in the series ever since. But at the time of Halloween 3's production, there was a quite different vision for the potential future of the series. So the the idea at that point then was that Halloween would become like an anthology kind of series rather than, you know, a, a franchise in a con, you know contemporary sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the later reviews that we recorded will also appear on this podcast feed as well, but, but at a later stage, because I think um, there is a new Halloween film coming out this year or maybe next year now. Um, as the release schedules of films have been completely disrupted, obviously, by the coronavirus situation. Indeed, yeah. But before that film comes out, hopefully we will add all of the reviews of of the other um, eight, I think, Halloween films that we've not yet covered um, to this feed. So we'll kind of drip feed them as we go forward in time. And uh, it's a really interesting film, Halloween 3, I think. It's, It's not... It's a very flawed film, but it's fascinating in lots of ways, which is why we wanted to put extra effort into it. And um, so it wasn't just a discussion that Howard and I recorded. We did that with a couple of special guests, um, Spider Dan, presenter of the comic books and cult films podcast, Spider Dan and the Secret Boars, and also the writer, Steve Timms. Spider Dan and Steve were originally supposed to be on separate episodes, Um, Spider-Dan was just going to speak about uh, the original Halloween and Steve was just going to talk about Halloween 3. But they were both around on the same day and we ended up having so much fun just chatting to them that they both got involved in both episodes. So we've got two discussions which are around four people. Although I do have to apologise because Spider-Dan didn't really know much about Halloween 3. He had seen it, but not since he was a child, basically. So um, he couldn't contribute a lot to the discussion, but we just liked having him there. Spider-Dan does come back in many of the later reviews in the series as well. But also, um, a friend of mine, uh, Dave Moore, is an uber fan of this film. 
and he organised a special screening of it around the same time that we were doing the podcast. Wow. So I went to the screening, I interviewed a, a, a bunch of fans afterwards, and I also had a kind of one-on-one interview with Dave where he talks about his history with the film and uh, and why why it was so interesting to him and what why he was driven to buy a ton of merchandise and 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 collect posters and 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 wear masks and all kinds of things. I suppose from my perspective, though, obviously, as I said, I've not seen the film, but I'm aware mm. that you know, kind of Halloween three, season of the witch, has this kind of cult status. Um, and, Increasingly, you know, so of, yeah, yeah, it seems to have kind of undergone a bit of a reappraisal um, in kind of recent years. So, um, you know, I'm gonna obviously. Uh, listen to the to, kind of to the segment and uh, maybe check it out. <laughs> oh, nice one. Well, yeah, I mean, um, for people who've not seen the film, I would say that um, it's safe to listen to the first 20 minutes or so of, of our segment, but then we do go into increasing spoilers because we just want to go into detail. In a way, I hope that this podcast has more detailed analysis of Halloween 3 than any other podcast ever, uh, possibly (laughs) any other media or any book ever, because I really went in-depth on the research for it. Um, And there are so many different contributors all bringing kind of different perspectives to it that I I think we probably cover every aspect of the movie. Um, But I'd like to hear from people if they think there's anything we don't mention that's interesting about the film. Also, there's a little video on our YouTube channel which visually shows you some of the people who are in the uh, present at the screening and you get to see um, a number of items from Dave's amazing collection as well. So it would it, it seemed like a good idea to do a little bit of visual accompaniment. Fab. So, yeah, so that's what we wanted to do and that's what you're going to hear right now. So you and I will be back at the end of the episode But for now, let's allow the listener to enjoy a great deal of enthused discussion about Halloween 3. We'll start off with a four-way discussion between myself, Howard, Steve and Spider Dan. And it begins with Steve Timms just giving a little bit of background about himself and his connection to the film. Steve, would you like to tell us about... A bit about me? Yeah, just give us a little bit about yourself. Um, I suppose I'm a failed um, artist. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Enjoy the car. <laughs> well, I'm a professional daydreamer who kind of uh, writes um, film reviews for uh, a website called Storgy. I've written plays and fiction and... Um, Recently started making my own postcards, which I sell on Etsy. But I am a big film fan, you know, so um, I really, I think I should have been a film critic because that's, I know so much about films. I'm, I'm just a mine of useless trivia. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we want to get <laughs> I am old enough to actually have seen this film when it came out, which is probably um, 1983, but it was actually released. It wasn't released at Halloween, it was in the summer, it was like July or something. And I saw it in, um, some older reader, uh, listeners might remember, um, Studios one to five on Deansgate, this sleazy cinema that you went down these steps and it was a bit, a bit grimy, uh, and God knows what kind of activities went on there. But late night, you know, it's uh, probably now a, a, a pub somewhere on Deansgate, and it was like a basement cinema. It was on in there. Okay, so Howard, how about yourself? How did you first see Halloween Three? Well, to be honest, I can't remember. I suppose it would be on like late night telly. Um, I can't really, I can't really remember when how old I was. I I don't think it made quite that big 
an impression on me as, as Halloween certainly did. I don't think I'm quite as enthusiastic about this film as other people might be. Dan, I understand that you haven't seen this film in a long time. No, I'm going to say maybe 15 years, possibly. Um, my my mum's boyfriend gave me the, basically a big bumper box of all the Halloween movies, and I kind of just okay. made my way through them. Um, he's a big fan. He has lots of horror tattoos. He's got Michael Myers on one shoulder, Pinhead on the other, <laughs> right. you name it. Uh, zombie Batman. He's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. Um, so he, he's let, he lent me them, and I kind of made my way through them all. And I remember him saying, that I was like, Halloween 3 hasn't got Mike Myers. But he was like, no, no, no. Give it, give it a try, give it a try. And I remember watching it, I remember going, you know, it's it's not, you know, I remember it being quite kind of, you know, quite kind of schlocky, kind of, you know, there's a lot of kind of weird, you know, it's robots, witchcraft and masks, magic masks and stuff. And so it was very interesting and intriguing. And I remember enjoying it. I remember like, I'm, I remember going, I'm glad I didn't skip over this. I mean, it's very, it's obviously very different from the initial Halloween saga, uh, the Michael Myers thing and the shape and all that. But, you know, I still remember not hating it. This is one year after the release of Halloween 2, which was a, a, a pretty big success. It was twice as expensive as the original. Its budget was two and a half million, and its box office was 25 million. Wow. So it was nowhere near as profitable as the original, but it was still a still very solid success. Capita said at one time that when the first film was so successful, the producers, um, who presumably he's meaning Erwin Yablans and Mustafa Akkad, um, who we did not even, we didn't even hardly mention Mustafa Akkad in, in the original podcast, because he, he doesn't really have a creative involvement in the first film, but he is the financier. He is the guy that Erwin Yablans convinced to give him the, the paltry amount of money that was yeah. needed to make the movie, and apparently. Uh, a card who was producing um, kind of epic historical movies uh, in uh, Asia at the time. You know, he, he said at one point that, you know, $300,000 is what we spend each day on most of the movies that <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, um, so he, he, he signed off on, on the budget for that movie. So it sounds like he and Yablans basically said to Carpenter and Hill, we're going to definitely do a sequel to Halloween. Yeah. And if you don't let us, we will sue you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Carpenter and Hill made a counter-argument. Again, I'm not entirely sure of the facts of this, but, but I've heard this said in... There's slightly different versions of, of, of this, yeah. but basically they said, OK, we'll do your Halloween 2 and Halloween 3, but the deal is we want... We'll do the Halloween 2 that you want, yeah. but for Halloween 3, we want creative control and we'll do okay. what we want. Right. So that was the deal that was made. Okay. So they always knew when doing Halloween 2 that there was going to be a Halloween 3, but it was going to be something completely different, which yeah. kind of explains why Halloween 2 was so definitively yeah. the end of the story. Yes. So they had complete control over 3, um, uh, and he had been, as a kid, a huge fan of the early Hammer horror films, including the Quatermass movies, mm. 1955's The Quatermass Experiment. 1950s Quite a Mass 2 particularly, which um, you can find elsewhere on YouTube, me and Howard talking about in our, in our, in our inane, enthusiastic way. Um, and the writer of those movies, or the, or the writer of the TV series that those movies were based on, the British writer Nigel Neal, was still around. Um, and I think in the late 70s, possibly when in, when in England promoting Assault on Precinct 13, Garbutter had got hold of the scripts, because he could buy them, they were just published. Yeah. Um, and, and he loved them, he realised that Neil was still working, he was still writing TV, and he basically contacted him and said, 
I would, I would like you to write Halloween 3, but you can do your own thing as long as my idea is write something about witchcraft in the computer age. Mm. Uh, they brought Nigel Neal on board. Deborah Hill gave her blessing to this, and, and he went away and wrote a draft of the script. So Nigel Neal handed in his script, um, and Deborah Hill later um, described it as being too old-fashioned, and certainly it was not liked by the, the higher-up producers, and it's possibly Dino De Laurentiis who didn't get it and insisted that they put more violent things into it. And it's not actually clear if Nigel Neal ever saw the final film. Mm-hmm. Some, uh, uh, some people claim that he saw the final cut and hated it, so he asked him to take his name off it. Um, Kim Newman actually reckons he never saw the movie. He just saw what they did to the script, and he said, okay, fine. The first draft was by Neil, then it was rewritten by John Carpenter, who is not credited either, Okay. Um, and by the director, who was Tommy Lee Wallace. But who is Tommy Lee Wallace? I don't really know. Tommy Lee Wallace. He was the editor and production designer of Halloween. He's the guy who cut out William Shatner's eyes. Oh, and he was offered Halloween In the mask. Too. Yes. Let's get that straight. No accusations here. Yeah, um, and he was offered Halloween too, but he didn't want to do it because he was clearly being asked to just fulfil a very specific brief, uh, do a sequel to Halloween in the same style. He wanted to have something that he could bring his own creativity to, and that's what he did. Did he make any more films after this? Uh, yeah, his most significant culturally um, impactful project was that he directed the miniseries of Stephen King's It in 1990. Oh. Um, everything else that he's done is not supposed to be very good. And I haven't, I haven't seen any of it. Like he did the sequel to John Carpenter's Vampires and he did the sequel to Fright Night. But It is oh. a memorable piece of work. Um, and, and, and Halloween 3 is. You happen to know anything about this Cochran? All I can tell you, mister. Watch out. Season He's watching you, friend, I guarantee you that. Drink or treat, drink or treat. Hey, Mr. Cochran, just what is the final process? Fellas, I was just kidding. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. Hey! Where are they taking her? They're taking her to the factory. Uh, just what I had in mind for you, little buddy. Why, Cockers? Why? Do I need a reason? I've got nothing here to indicate there was ever a body at all. Operator, this is an emergency. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. You've got to believe me! They're going to kill us. All of us. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. Happy Halloween. Stop it! Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, the night no one comes home. As we did when we did our podcast about Halloween, um, I quoted from Halliwell's film guide to sum up the plot, and you can do that for this one as well. But whereas the the plot of Halloween is so simple that you can kind of sum it up directly in a sentence. Because um, surely not... you can sum up all the other Halloween films with that same sentence. <laughs> well, yeah, but the, the sentence for this movie is quite different. Halliwell's summation was, 
A malicious toy maker intends to restore Halloween to its witch cult origins through magic masks made at his Santa Mira factory. <laughs> and what I love about that is, that is the great idea. But it's like, you kind of, the film could be anything from that. You know, it, does, it doesn't give you a plot, it gives you a kind of notion. How would you describe the story, Howard? As in, uh. <laughs> I mean, what, what I mean is not the idea, but like the narrative that the film takes you on. Um, I mean, I assume that obviously most people listening to this will have probably seen it, but at the same time, maybe some people won't have because I think it's it's the overlooked film in the series. Yeah. And maybe people who like Halloween and Halloween Two might not watch Halloween Three, but might be interested in it. Well, no, I think you should. I think you should watch it. I, know, I think it's interesting. I, I do mm. think it's interesting. I think it's intriguing, and it starts well. Yeah, it starts, the story starts with a man running um, in a small Midwestern town. A man is running from strange business-suited killers who are pursuing him. He has a Halloween mask held in his hand and he manages to evade the pursuers but an injury causes him to be taken to a local hospital where unfortunately they later catch up with him and horrifically murder him. The doctor on duty that night is Dr. Dan Chalice, played by Tom Atkins. And he, together with the daughter of the deceased man, uh, Ellie, played by Stacey Nelgin, investigates the murder, and their trail eventually leads them back to Santa Mira, the last town visited by Ellie's father. And this town is the home of Silver Shamrock Novelties, um, a famous toy factory. While they're in this town, the plot thickens, there are more of these sinister, besuited men around, who we eventually start to believe are not entirely human. And we get to meet the mysterious founder of the Silver Shamrock organisation. Well, it has actually a classic villain, one of the great villains probably of horror films, is a Cathal, what's he called? Connell Cochran. Connell Cochran. Uh, plays by uh, a very well-respected, uh, sadly deceased Irish actor called Dan O'Hurley, who probably most people will know because he was in Robocop. And that probably is his biggest kind of modern film, I guess. Yeah, but he was around from like the 50s and he was actually Oscar nominated for playing Robinson Crusoe in a film directed by Louis Bloodwell. Uh, he was in The Last Starfighter, I think. Of um, course, Nick Castle's The Last Starfighter bringing mm-hmm. us Another link to the franchise. In Halloween 3, he's a, a toy manufacturer, a guy who invented sticky toilet paper. <laughs> yes, a, a that famous toy. <laughs> but now he makes masks and he's got a very sinister agenda. And uh, he, he kind of raises this film up because so, he's got an actor who's got a, a natural gravitas. And he, he is the reason why this film is, is, is good, I think. He, he's just a great villain. Yeah, it's a film with great atmosphere, and the, it's a very slow build, the, the, the dramatic tension builds very slowly. When they get to the town of Santa Mira, you know, and they check into a hotel, and they're pretending to be um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Um, yeah. You don't really know what's going on at this factory, you hear these, these sort of rumours about weird things going on there. And it's just a very, very engrossing story, really. Um, and you hear a lot about the about the... Coughlin before he actually appears, you know, so there's like this... Um, I love the bit... mystique that builds up around yeah, his character. It's, uh, he controls his town, really. He, he's, you know, he's uh, taken over 
the factory and brought all these people into work. And everybody kind of loves him, which I think is quite eerie. Well, everyone speaks about Coughlin a lot, they're like, oh, no, it's like fawning over his genius. I love that moment where there's... They're outside the motel, um, just talking to the guy, uh, the motelier, or whatever is the word. He says, ah, here's Mr. Cochrane now. And you see that his um, limo with blacked out windows coming past very slowly, which I think whenever a car moves unnecessarily slowly in a film, it's a bad sign. Um, But it's a lovely entrance, and you don't see Cochrane, but you see his point of view. Cochrane, isn't it? Yes. Cochrane has this fabulous speech, which... You will probably oh, remember it. I know it word for word. <laughs> yeah. But he talks about the, the, the idea that Halloween, about 3,000 years ago, it, it was something very different and mm. sort of children were sacrificed. But yeah, that, that speech, that is obviously very Nigel Neal. That is from his original script. Yeah, and you get that impression. As far as I'm aware. But that is genuinely chilling that this 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 uh, Irish toy event, he's trying to... The planets are realigned and... Um, he somehow, I mean, that idea that he's stolen a piece of Stonehenge, and then it's a bit of a cop out where say, you'll never guess how we got it over here. Well, and doesn't it go beyond and explain that? I, I think, I actually think that's the best line in the film, because it's, again, like the thing about how did Michael Myers drive a car. It's a great <laughs> example of dropping. With, and also, that wasn't in Nigel Neal's script, because his script had no Stonehenge connection. And we'll go into that in more detail later, but... Uh, uh, but I think, I think, yeah, I think it's the best line in the film. It's just like, we had a time getting it here. You wouldn't believe how we did it. And it's so great. Well, Dan O'Hurley just sells that because he's just yeah. so good. I wonder, if, I wonder if he wrote that line, to be honest, because it just, it's so perfect well, for the character. Well, he's so many bits. I just love watching this film for his performance. Mm. Like when he, especially when he talks about special processing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, a bit of tweaking, a bit of this and that, yeah, a bit well, of your magic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, the, the bit where he puts the mask on a child's head and goes, ha, 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 there we are. You know. It's a shame that actors who appear in the sort of genre films never really get recognition, do they? It's, but no, that is true. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I mean, it's such a good, really a great right. performance, you know. It's a great, it's a classic villain, really, that's... Yeah. One of those performances that's not really that's been overlooked, which is a real shame, actually, because he's so good. Because the movie's called Season of the Witch, some people have interpreted that Cochrane is the witch, mm. and he's like, a, because he says, I, I remember what Halloween was like 2,000 years ago. Well, he doesn't say he remembers, but he says he wants to bring it back. And so, so he's like 2,000 years old, he's like a 2,000 year old witch, magic man. Um, but on the other hand, you could just uh, read it like Kim Newman does, which is that he's comes from generations of like toy makers who, mm. who have a connection to the kind of pagan history, and therefore you, you could possibly have stories and films about the previous Cochrans. Yeah, you know, um, and I, th- I, I think there's loads you could kind of explore there. No, it's a great character, isn't it? Mm. So that's another reason to watch it. So. Yeah. What's your opinion of Tom Atkins as, as a leading man? Well, I think he's good. Um, and I think Howard and I will go into more detail on this, but he, he's always reminded me kind of pleasantly of Brian Don Levy in Quatermass films, which Nigel Neal hated his performance, but I think he was a solid lead. And Atkins is better than that. He's a really good actor, I think, and he's a, he's a genuine horror star. You know, he, he, he did lots of movies around that time, and I think he got... And he's a member of the, uh, uh, the Carpenter Rep Company, you know. Yeah. He was also in The Fog and Scoop New York. And he goes on to do movies like Night of the Creeps and Maniac Cop. 
And um, what's the way away from called the ninth configuration? I've seen that, but I'd forgotten I he was in it. Yeah, directed by uh, William Peter Blatter, who obviously wrote The Exorcist. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's worth checking out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it, no, it really is, actually. I'd totally forgotten he was in it. Um, but it's a, it's a very interesting film. I do, I must say, I do admire Tom Atkins in this film called Getting Off with a Woman About 25 Years of Junior. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's, you know, he's a I mean, role. I I think that just that's just Hollywood. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's just spe- especially Bond films anyway. That's, <laughs> that's that's mostly it. I think we should acknowledge Tom Atkins does that in the fog as well, and it's Jamie Lee Curtis in that movie. I do think Tom Atkins is a really interesting lead in the sense that yes, uh, he he picks up the young heroine and does a unconvincing uh, romantic stud move in the movie, and and, and the scene where um, they sleep together is the worst scene in the entire film. But apart from that, I think he's a pretty interesting hero. He's a blatant alcoholic. He's always drinking. Multiple, every single scene in the film, he's got a drink on the go. He's obviously a pretty terrible father. He's <laughs> on the brink of divorce. Uh, in the first scene in the movie, you see him meeting his wife. Obviously, they're separated. She's got the kids. Um, his wife's played by Nancy Loomis from Halloween. All right. Although under the name Nancy Kyes, I think. Did she, mar- she get married or something? Um, well, she was married to Tommy Lee Wallace, who directed oh. this film. But obviously, his name's not Kai's. I don't quite yeah. know. Maybe she just changed her stage name. Stage name, yeah. Um, it happens. But yeah, so, so so basically, she is the only actor who's on screen in not in the first three Halloween films. Although in Halloween two, she just plays a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> but her voice is on the phone in Halloween two, so mm. so you see and hear her in all the films. He's got an interesting face. He's pockmarked. Mm. He's got a kind of weight and a credibility to him, which I really like. I, yeah. I think, he's, I think he's, he's, he's solid, he's kind of likeable. He's, yeah. he's, no, he's, he's a proper, I, I think he's great in the part. I think he's tripping in the part, we mm. all are. And I think he's great in this. He's got his like a Jim Hackman kind of everyman yeah. character. I've, I've, always, I've always appreciated his performances and things I have seen him in. I think we were talking about Maniac Cop. Mm. I think he was in that, he was good in that. And he does have a kind of rugged, it's almost like a noirish feel he has, yeah, this yeah, kind of noir. Is. You know, Sam Spade kind of... Uh, when I see him in films, he's always kind of in that sort of vein and the older kind of cop uh, character. But I, I've always I've always thought he was... You know, he's, he's, cre- he's very credible, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he, he yeah. should be doing more. A few years ago, um, they were going to make a new Halloween 3, which would have been a sequel to the Rob Zombie Halloween 2. Right. And so it obviously was not going to be anything like this Halloween 3. But as a, as a tip of the hat to the original, I believe there was a plan to give t- Tom Atkins a role. Really? Nice. Um, but the movie was never made because yeah. the, the, the Dimension films lost the rights to the Halloween oh, franchise. Right. Well, he's still um, doing stuff because he's in the remake of My Bloody Valentine. Is he really? He's the cop. He's always in the first five minutes of it, and that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's more than enough. But he is the cop. I think Kim Newman says he is the cop in so many ways. Yeah, he is the cop. He is the cop. Um, and there's a, has that, either of you seen Night of the Creeps? No, but I want to. I really want to, specifically because I know that Tom Atkins is in it and he gets this line. The good news is your dates are here. The bad news is they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> but good, and he's an old guy as well. Yeah. yeah. In, in a genre that was kind of dominated by teenagers at the time. Yeah. And he's an older guy. Mm. He Mm-hmm. And I think he, he feels like, you know, this was the early 80s, the, the age of like Dr. Kildare, and he feels like a kind of more cynical, realistic take on that, mm. the philandering, unreliable yeah. doctor. Yeah. I mean, there's a sequence in the, the hospital near the start of the film where he's obviously on shift, and he's sleeping on a couch, 
and um, he hears a nurse screaming because the murder has just happened mm. and and he kind of rouses himself and he just looks so knackered he looks like a real doctor yeah, would look on a believable. um and i also i just that i love that sequence because even though this film is not directed by john carpenter it feels so John Carpenter. He's yeah. doing the music. It's mm. still shot by Dean Condy. Yeah. The sequence where they, uh, the motel is surrounded by the robot guys and they're all kind of lit from the back with a blue light yeah. and they're all silhouetted. It looks amazing in a very 80s kind of way. Uh, and I love all that. And the sequence in the hospital where he wakes up and he runs to help the screaming nurse mm. is all done in Steadicam. Mm. And it has this kind of woozy, I've just woken up kind of thing. And... Mm the camera follows him as he runs in sort of slow motion almost and the music kind of builds up and I just think it's fantastic uh, and that, that whole kind of style to me even though it, you know there's lots to criticise about it I think I love it for basically for two, two specific reasons one of them is that it's, it's Nigel Neal whose work I appreciate and although it's not the best example of his work it's got his great ideas in it. and the other one is I think it's basically a John Carpenter film not directed by John Carpenter, but yeah. very much. Mm. But it's not that, again, like the hammer time things and that scheme is in it. It gives it that sort of yeah. Yeah. John Carpenter feel to it. Mm. The black guy who works at the petrol station is played by an actor called Essex Smith. Oh. Which I think is. That's a good name. That's a good name. That's a good name. And in the old days, there was an old film star called Kent Smith. So there's a kind of... It is a good note. Did you know Essex Smith's voice is also in the film in a different, in a different role? He does the football game. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a very kind of unknown supporting cast in Halloween 3. Yes, no, it is. Obviously, they don't want to anything else. Yeah, and I think and, that's uh, strange. Halloween 2, for instance, uh, a couple of the, uh, the actress, Alan, Anna Alicia, mm-hmm. yeah, so she went on to do Falcon Crest and some things. Leo Rossi right. was in films like The Acute. So they're kind yeah. of like, mm-hmm. they've got other things, but I don't know any of these people. No. Um, I don't know from other John Carpenter, but I don't know any, any yeah. other actors in it. Not, nobody seems to no, it's, it, it's a strangely else. anonymous cast on that level. Um, Which in a way, it's like more nerd. Yeah, mm-hmm. you yeah. Don't see these people again. Yeah. So maybe there were no maybe robots were all along. Yeah. Santa Mira does feel like it does feel like going to a strange town that you never want to go back yeah. to. Yeah. It um, I do think it's. I mean, I think one of the problems with the film, as Kim Newman pointed out in his book Nightmare Movies, is that they're obviously keen to pay homage to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is fine, but it doesn't really suit the film. It doesn't really no. suit the story. And for instance. Why is an Irish-founded company town called Santa Mira? Yeah. Um, because that's the town in Body Snatchers. And also, I think that the kind of the, the suited guys, the suited robot guys, I think are probably from the fact that somebody thought, you know what, we, we haven't got Michael Myers in this, but we should so we probably need, put yeah. someone who's a bit like Michael. So we've got stalking, slow-moving yeah. man. And that actually, killed. The, the lead guy, the lead robot guy in it, is played by the same actor, Dick Warlock, who played the shape in Halloween 2. Oh. Um, and he's a lovely man, if you've seen an interview with him. Um, he's, got, he's got a really soft, unmenacing face. <laughs> and he's the guy who like, pulls people's heads off and stuff in the movie. Um, well, that's very disconcerting. <laughs> well, it, it is disconcerting, absolutely. Um, it kind of it makes me think of like... I think Michael Myers, one of the inspiration of Michael Myers was definitely like Westworld, the original kind of Westworld. Yes. With Which Gil is Brenner, all wonder. Yeah, you know, he's all, yeah. he's all garbed in kind of black, blue, and, you know, it's, it's inspiration for the Terminator as well, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this, this being that's stalking you slowly and can't be killed. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the, I think that's, there's definitely some inspiration there. 
Yeah, like I said, it is, it is intriguing in the beginning, it is good and everything, but for me, uh, Dan O'Hurley is brilliant. He's a good performer, Tom Mackie's really good, Stacey Nelkin, who's the female lead, is really good. And there's some interesting moments and suspenseful things, but for me there are just so many plot holes, especially towards the end, so many inconsistencies, that it does affect, for me, the enjoyment of it, and by the end you just get quite frustrated. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there are, are um, there are things wrong with it, actually. I mean, it's important to... I think it, this is a film that requires some suspension of disbelief, really. And uh, yes. Um, <laughs> a heavy dose of, of that, really. The, the, the main character is Dr Chalice. I mean, he's, he makes the easiest escape from a cell in the history of cinema, actually. Well, firstly, he, he, he's... Um, Coughlin's plan is to um, broadcast subliminal message on Halloween that will um, melt children's melt heads. Melt children's faces, really. It will turn them into snakes and, and insects. So, well, TV's yeah. been doing that for years. <laughs> yeah, that's the sort of way it has well, effect on Maybe there's a satirical comment by Nigel Neal um, there, actually. Um, but, but Dr. Charles makes his, his escape. He, firstly, he kicks in a TV set while he's sort of tied to a chair. I mean, if anyone attempts to kick in a TV set, you know, you're going to break your foot, probably. Yeah. Then he... he well, maybe uh, not now. Maybe not yeah. now in the age of flat screens, but certainly... Yeah, and then the two... The cathode TV. Yeah. yeah. Then he somehow, he, 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 with his hands tied together, he, he gets the mask that he's been forced to wear. He flips it up in the air, it lands perfectly on, on, a, on a security camera. Yes. Then he effortlessly um, sort of severs these bonds that he's... It's just like it's just like it's like some sort of superhero at this point. No, I, no, I think you're completely right. I, I, I think I'm happy to um, give away an advance. I think the whole end of the film is um, it kind of goes off the rails. I think all the special yeah, stuff is earlier, and the the things that stay with you and that are fascinating are all earlier in the film. The ending is just kind of a caper, ridiculous adventure nonsense, really. Towards the end, Tom Atkins rescues what he thinks is Stacey Nelkins, the female lead, only she's been replaced by a robot. Yeah. Married by Dan O'Hurley. Very good robot. Yeah. Looks like. Standard. Um, yeah. <laughs> and she, this robot, who presumably is being controlled or built by, for some reason helps him to escape, helps him destroy all the robots, helps him to stop yeah. Dan O'Hurley's plan, and helps him to escape. And then when they're in the car later on, then she suddenly reveals she's a robot and attacks him. So you've got this massive plot hole just to have a kind of twist at the end where she turns on it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's unfair, that's not right. You can't have that sort of thing just to have a kind of twist at the end. Which have something which really makes no sense just to have a kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah it's twist. just... Who in Santa Mira is a robot who isn't? How many actual people mm. are living there? Mm. How many actual robots? Yeah. I don't know. Mm. I don't know whether the Irish guy who runs the motel is... Uh, a robot, but he's a real person, or mm. a woman they meet in an office. Yeah. I know the guys in suits are, because yeah. um, but I, I don't know. And do the human beings who live in Santa Maria know that these other people are robots? Do they know what? Yeah, I think like the, the holes in Halloween are purely because it, it's low budget and it's you know you might see a, a crew member pop his head over a hedge or a, a puff of smoke from John Carter's cigarette. You know those things. You kind of they're kind of charming in their in their way. But if you know you're talking about like it's structural, story based elements, plot holes. Those are those are big issues. They're a big problem. And a lot of my favorite films have those in abundance. But I still love them for the charm and the, and the way. They are. I think the kind of plot holes you're talking about 
um, are the plot of the most big budget movies have, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, I think true. all the Bond films have these kind of things. Like the, the, the third th- act is quite famous in films for letting yeah. everything go. Yeah, and specifically, like, I mean, to, to your point about Santa Mira and the Irish people and whether it's like, are they real people or are they robots? If they're real people, do they know about Colonel Cochrane's evil schemes or do they think he's just a nice guy? If they know about the evil schemes, are they on his side? And are, they, are, they, are they sentient at all? Yeah, and, and all yeah. that stuff. But you know, but at the same time, it's like it's exactly the same problem in the James Bond film *Living That Die*, where the bad guy rules yeah. an entire island with this quite similar name actually called San Monique, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, and they just don't really they, they kind of hint at the idea that everybody on the island is part of his gang. Yeah. But so so it's like, don't they have a society? How does the economy work? Yeah. You know, and, uh, and but that's just kind of left and you're not supposed to think about it. Mm. I think the reason it comes across as a bit worse in Halloween 3 is because although it's got a bigger budget than Halloween had, mm. it's got the same budget as Halloween 2 had, mm. which means that both films can afford to explode a car. Yeah. Uh, this, <laughs> this happens in both films. I think it's clearly, it's like a, a piece of... That's, the motif. That's the motif of all the films. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, look at our money, we're blowing up sedans. Um, <laughs> It seems worse because although it's got a bigger budget, it feels like it has a smaller budget because the plot is bigger. It's much, much bigger. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a grand scheme. Yeah, and they haven't got the money to explore that. Um, and in a way, that's what I was trying to get at when I said, you know, when I read the Halliwell's description of the plot, you could read that description and imagine a huge movie. Mm. Whereas what you've got here is a movie about um, a woman's father gets killed in a strange way and she goes with his doctor to investigate the town which he last went to where there's a spooky factory. Like Kim Newman said on the DVD, that's like an episode of The Avengers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it'd be a fun episode, and it is yeah. a fun movie. Yeah. I kind of enjoy it. I, I did enjoy it. And certainly the fact that Michael Myers is not in it doesn't bother me at all. No. And, and in fact, it, to me, it's a slightly wasted opportunity. It would have been great if they'd made a series of anthology films. That'd be cool. Film the different story mm. somehow incorporated. All, all set on Halloween. Halloween. I think yeah. Michael Myers' story had been told by the end of Halloween 2 when essentially he's dead and Don Pleasant is dead, that's yeah. that kind of story was finished and you can move on to something else. Um, I just I just think it's a slightly wasted opportunity. I think it could have been better. I, I think that the whole kind of idea of it, the evil scheme that the film is based around, is just a, is a fascinating, bizarre concept. Yeah, and I can kind of understand why people who went along expecting something else, expecting a, a slasher movie or whatever, confronted with this bizarre concept just kind of went what what the hell was that mm. um but i think that if you didn't know that it was a sequel and you just watched it on its own terms you might not like it but you'd probably be op- more open to it being whatever it is um i do think it's a very underrated film it's perhaps not got enough given enough credit really yes yeah, so it's the one that's perhaps forgotten because it's obviously a, a thematic sequel well i don't understand because this film is kind of hinted by, in Leonard Martin's film though, which is not, which is usually quite fair. About yeah, it, yeah, it's fair enough. Uh, it describes this film as genuinely repellent. Right. Uh, in a 1980s way, and there's gore galore. Mm. Now I don't think either of those things are true. I don't think it's repellent, and I certainly don't think there's a lot of gore. But mm. it's funny. Um, we talked about how Roger Ebert had given Halloween one of the first glowing reviews. He hated Halloween 3. He, mm. he put it on his most hated yeah. films of the year list. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think part of it is, like Steve, uh, people had certain expectations and it was just, 
it was so different to their expectations that they, that they found it very distasteful. I do think it is also very violent um, because, um, in, in a slightly senseless way, because the violent moments they wanted to put into it to make it more horrific are not really necessary to the story and are kind of shockingly, strangely gross and involve children and things yeah. that I think people uh, found that distasteful as well. Mm. Um, I should also say... Howard, because I know you've recently rewatched re it on DVD, there are several different cuts of the film. Um, there's the version that you will have just recently seen, which is like the least violent version, which is the kind that the version that often gets on television. There's the kind of the, the, there's a media, and that's usually released on DVD as, with a 15 certificate, so you can tell um, that a mile off. There's the version that I saw initially, which was on VHS in the 90s, which is kind of an intermediate version, which you get a pretty good idea of how violent sequences are, but not you don't see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the full version. I, th I think these derive from the fact that different cuts of the film were released in different territories. Right. Um, uh, if you buy the Scream Factory Blu-ray, which came out a couple of years ago, mm. it's got the full version on it. The bit near the beginning where the, the guy's in the hospital and the robot man comes and kills him in his bed and then sets fire to himself. Um... There's definitely a version of that where you you see the man, the robot guy, put his finger in the guy's eye and he pulls his head apart. It's, it's really nasty. Um, whereas obviously all, all other cuts of the film just imply what's happening. So the so the cuts are, are they purely for violence? The cuts that have been made, not story elements or anything. No, like I don't that? think there are any so deleted scenes. It's not like the Wicker Man. Not okay. Something. No, it's just. Well, I assume. The bit where the female scientist gets the drill. You see her get the drill. No, I don't think you see that in any version. But it's still pretty nasty. It's that's, still pretty nasty, but it's not gory because you don't see it. No, no. It's a shame because if it had been successful, they probably would have made more one-off films, like an anthology series, and we wouldn't have had the Michael Myers sequels. So many, I mean, so many popular anthologies, weren't there? Yeah, There's yeah. Like, uh, Tales from the Dark Side. It was a thing that worked it on Twilight TV, Zone and all, yeah. those, all those kind of things. It would have been nice to see like a. a film version of that there was even yeah. like Freddy's Nightmares the oh TV God, series yeah. you know and yeah it's quite big in the 80s Creepshow 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 which starred Tom Atkins by there the way there you go there you go yeah. one, one build yeah but, oh, but I think I think that could have been a really interesting you know franchise so Kim Newman said on one of the uh, DVD commentaries in one of the films that um, instead of Halloween 1 Halloween 2 and Halloween 3 it would have been better if we had Halloween the Fog and Halloween 3 and that would have been the Kind of like, yeah, you could, like, yeah. Because yeah. uh, I, I mean, I love the fog. Fog is probably my favourite American horror film. I just think it's brilliant. Uh, and I kind of compare the fog, which is great by John Carpenter, but uh, to Halloween 3, and I just think it's, it doesn't quite have the same no. atmosphere. Uh, it's very, uh, it looks, it's got that kind of 80s look about it. Yeah, it does, it does look very 80s. Um, whereas Halloween is a very 70s film, it's mm. darkness in its simplicity and its license. Uh, Halloween 3 is, you said schlocky, and I think, yeah, a little bit. I think yeah. that's an appropriate word to use about schlocky, comedy, mm. comic type thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, perhaps I don't like things about witchcraft particularly, but it's not my favourite genre of I mean, there's not many, there's not many f films about witches, really. Well, I mean, yeah. although I'd argue that it's, it's almost not really about witchcraft. I mean, they do use that word, and it's they got the word cybermancer or something. <laughs> Why yeah. they call it? But it's it's really I think it's a weird science fiction thriller. Oh yeah, no, it's a science fiction thriller. Yeah. The, the more I think about it, the more it kind of like it makes me think of like like we're saying pulpy, schlocky, comic booky kind of thing. Mm. It makes me think of uh, Doctor Doom from the Fantastic Four. He's known for being 
whack, well, crazy. Uh, but he's also very much in control. He's like you guys were saying that he's kind of one with the people. It's kind of creepy as this mm. influence over them, and also that he, you know, Doctor Doom is known for mixing sorcery with science, and that's that sounds exactly mm. kind of this. And and the more I think about it, the more I'm like, oh yeah, I remember bits of it, and it does kind of it brings that kind of that supervillain schlock to it. Yeah, and again, that's um, that's very Nigel Neal. I think Danny Peary in the book Cult Movies described Nigel Neal as the first Britisher to mix elements of science fiction with horror. Because, hmm. you know, because he was doing that in 1953. Hmm. Um, and, it, it, you know, a, a lot of his best things are kind of ghost stories in hmm. which he goes into, like The Stone Tape, 1972's The Stone Tape, which is a brilliant BBC play. Hmm. Um, is a scientific investigation of a haunting in which the characters are able to scientifically define what haunting is. But but it's still a scary story. He's got a funny way of being able to do that, like kind of make the supernatural more credible, but without making it less frightening. We should talk a little bit about Nigel Neal to kind of give more context. So many of his previous and subsequent works are kind of wonderful touchstones of science fiction and horror. And weirdly, because in a way his work is not that well known in America, because although he wrote this film and he tried, he, he was involved in like writing a remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon around the same time, he knew people like John Landis and Joe Dante. He didn't have a very good time in Hollywood. Um, and he, he, you know, he quickly um, abandoned all that and just came back. I think the last thing he was credited on in, in his lifetime was Probably an episode of Sharp. He wrote an episode of Sharp. Not, not Bastard! <laughs> he wrote an episode, and I thought it was so bizarre, of a series called Cavern of QC. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember that. Uh, and it was about a guy who was accused of being a Nazi war criminal. Oh, okay. Uh, and I saw his name up. You know, yeah. when I, I thought it was going to be some kind of, yeah. some kind of supernatural so, or something. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, well, it was, it was, it was actually a very, very serious mm. on the story about a guy who was being a, accused of being a Nazi. And mm. it was at the end. Well, that would have um, that would have been a consequence of the fact that Kavanaugh QC was made by producer Ted Charles on Central Television, who also made Inspector Morse. But crucially, they'd worked with Neil. Before. They also made Sharp. They made The Woman in Black, which Neil wrote in 1989, and they made the final Quatermass series in 1979. So it was kind of a long-standing relationship. So I think he just basically, possibly, just liked working yeah. with them and and was like, "Yes, I'll I'll write your your lawyer program, whatever." But it wasn't unknown. Um, for instance, one, an episode of Inspector Morse written by a very famous playwright called Peter Nichols, who wrote The Game of Death and Joe Oh, right. Uh, okay. Uh, just one episode. And Martin Bradbury, who yes. used to write episodes of Touch of Frost. So it wasn't mm. that much of a come down. It wasn't no. a come down at all for somebody to write an episode of a Morse kind of made writing episodic detective series kind of. Yeah, yeah so kudos. Bradbury wrote, wrote for that as well, and of course Anthony Mingala was the first writer yeah, yeah. of Morse, and um, yeah, lots of lots of great writers. And I think that um, again, that was Central Television. I think Ted Childs, who had produced the Sweeney in the seventies, was very much a part of kind of raising the the quality threshold of TV and the and the expectation and um, uh, and the kind of status of it really. Um, it's it said on the DVD commentary of Halloween 3 by Kim Newman that um, possibly the, the idea for the movie was derived from Nigel Neal's uh, unmade 60s or 70s TV concept, which he, he did called The Big Giggle, which is a great title. <laughs> um, which was a, 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 
it was something to do with um, it was a six part script and he wrote the whole script it was commissioned to do it but then the BBC or whoever it was read it and said actually we can't do this and it was all about a TV programme that convinces teenagers to kill themselves or something or, just, or maybe... just put on just put on Love Island I mean <laughs> that, that convinced me <laughs> um, so, uh, and it might have been derived from that I think also um the fourth Quatermass series, which Neil wrote in about 1972, but which was made in 79, is all about um, young people, children and teenagers, being drawn by a mysterious force to go and visit ancient sites like mm. Stonehenge. Okay. Um, and when they go and gather in great numbers there, this kind of astral force comes to meet them and they think they're being transported to heaven or somewhere else. But they're actually being killed. Yeah. It's, um, and I, I think it's quite similar to the, the basic concept of, of um, Halloween 3 and in fact obviously in the movie Halloween 3 the power that comes through the television which Conal Cochran is using is derived from a Stonehenge monolith but that wasn't in Nigel Neal's script that was something that they added in the rewrites after he left the project mm. but obviously I think maybe Beverly thought this is, this is the kind of thing he'd do but I do think that one of the interesting things about Neil as a writer is that he has this very black sense of humour and it's a very adult sense of humour and he's frequently very cruel to young people and their children. Well, I thought that watching Quentin Mass, I haven't seen Quentin Mass before, Quentin Mass Conclusion it was called. Uh, when it was released at the cinema it was called Quentin Mass Conclusion. The, the John Wentz Quentin Mass. Yeah. When I watched that a few years ago, I think it was repeated I thought, this guy doesn't like young people very much. Mm. Mm. He's portraying them all as being rather simple and hippie-ish and mm. self-indulgent and kind of... Uh, and there was a certain reactionary mm. element to it, which I didn't quite... Yeah. Like, all all it's the young people are saving the day and all the young people are foolish mm. and themselves get killed. Yeah. Uh, oh, but I, yeah. Although I do think of the fact that he, he does horrible things to, to, to various kinds of people in his stuff, but I think he's always giggling about it a little bit, in the sense that, I mean, for instance, um, I think earlier in his career he was asked to write for Doctor Who when it was quite new, and he flatly refused. A, because he didn't like it, and B, because he said, you know, it, it, it's blatantly irresponsible and wrong to write essentially horror for children, because hmm. you, you're upsetting children. So he saw his stuff as being for adults, but he obviously thought it was totally fine to be horrible to children in an adult, in adult context, yeah. not in real life. And I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so therefore he writes, it's like he's, he's writing the most horrible things that could happen hmm. to people. But, but going, it's, it's, it's fiction. Yeah, it's, it's fiction. fiction. Yeah. You know, let's have a laugh. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and it's I never happen in real life. And the, the black, the black humour in Halloween Three that comes through the most is obviously the stuff about the fact that Conal Cochran is supposed to be a practical joker who's invented these horrible jokes. Um, he was the man who invented sticky toilet paper. They say at one point, and um, and the dead dwarf gag. You know. Yeah, I'd like to see that one. <laughs> yeah. um, Will they keep that for the remake? <laughs> I hope so. Um, you know so. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it, it, it's a really interesting body of work, and I do think it kind of sits within it. And I think it's the, uh, it, I kind of like to not just to read that original script, but it would be there's lots in it, lots of ideas and um, moods and mm. notions which I think could be explored so much more. Mm. That's why I wish, in a way, they'd done it with a massive budget. I, I kind of feel slightly annoyed that like Halloween 2 had a massive budget compared yeah. to Halloween 1 but Halloween 3 didn't have a bigger budget than Halloween 2 it had the same budget yeah. but it needed a bigger yeah. budget and they should have they should have treated it like a proper like you know can you imagine if it was made 
on the scale of something from the 70s like the Andromeda Strain mm. or, or some, one of those big stark sci-fi movies I know, I know recently going back to comic books um, I know recently that um, they've on. taken on I'll take the tangent but um, recently they've, they're producing the un, uh, unused script for Alien 3 and they're making it into a comic book oh, so yes. kind of, yeah. can kind of see you know if we can cap, like what, the film that would have been because yeah. like, we did a I did a documentary for Nerdify I don't think you can get the podcast anymore but oh. that was a podcast I used to be a part of uh, and we were saying that the, like, I ultimately said there was a good film in there but mm. because of all the problems it didn't come out um, but even comp- even John Carpenter's uh, helped produce some um, comic books recently as kind of sequels to the original so uh, they've done Big Trouble Little China they've yes. done a series on that and John Carpenter's involved uh, they've done Escape from New York as well and he's involved in the writing the producing they did the thing didn't they that was I a think while ago yeah a while back I think they did as well I, I've heard very good things about that. they've those. done a crossover between weirdly Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York so they had like an inter so Kurt Russell just looking at himself <laughs> pretty much uh, but I think they're Boom Boom Studios I think they're called I think right. that's where they're from but yeah John Carpenter's he, he gives it his blessing and helped you know generate the idea I don't know if he's fully writing it still right. uh, or had I think he just kind of was like where do you want to go this is what I would do and the writer's gone yeah I'll do that I think at one point they were going to do a third escape story Snake Bliskin yes. story yeah. but Deborah Hill was involved with uh, commissioning the writer for yeah. the comic book and then she died she right. died in yeah, 2005 so yeah. I think that kind of kept, obviously ended the project but no maybe we should phone up those guys and say do, can you do can a graphic you do, novel yes. of the yeah. original Halloween 3 please really please do Something you mentioned in our uh, podcast about Halloween, Steve, was how much you loved the score for this movie, which is by John Carpenter and Alan Howarth. Weirdly, it's the only movie they worked together where the credit says music by John Carpenter and Alan Howarth, not music by John Carpenter in association with Alan Howarth. Mm. Um, it was, apparently, it was very much a collaboration. I do think it's a great, weird score. I think um, it's one of you could listen to on, it's almost uh, like an ambient soundtrack, really, mm. like um, something you could listen to at home on your own and just kind of become very immersed in it, because it's very sort of low-key, it, it, it's very, um, not mellow as such, but it, it's, it's quite immersive music mm. that would probably stand up on its own, I think. Apart from the silver shamrock jingle, yes. which is sort of horribly annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but intentionally so. I think, you know. Yeah. Happy, happy Halloween, 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 happy, happy Halloween, Silver I think you compared um, Calvin's music to Boards of Canada. A few years ago, um, I was involved in a stage version of Nigel Neal's play, Wine of India. And I actually used Boards of Canada music on that because it just, it had that kind of um, strangely hypnotic, Mm. All pervasive atmosphere, which is the kind of thing that a lot of Neil's work hints at, and that I certainly think is carried in the score of Halloween Three. One of their albums is called Tomorrow's Harvest, which is a vaguely sort of sinister connotation. I think there's a pagan kind yeah, of thing to it. Yeah, yeah, oh, um, oh, really nice. No, it's it's a wonderful soundtrack. I did actually have the album of this on vinyl 
Oh. Which I, I bought from, um, I think, Yanks Records on off Oxford Road. I don't know if anyone remembers Yanks Records. No. They used to, buy, they, they used to stock like, loads of cheap albums. And all the albums, like the corners cut off the sleeves for some strange reason. But I had the soundtrack of that and um, sadly don't have it anymore. But it, 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 it's fabulous music, it really is. Um, no, I've listened to it a lot. I, I really like it. One of the tunes is called Chariots of Pumpkins. Oh. Um, and I can't, I can't think why it is, except that this was the year of the Chariots of Why it came out, and they were probably just taking the mickey. For me, his stuff is very British. Yes. There's that very British restraint to mm. reserve to it and, and things he does. And transposing that to an American yeah, it's situation, a perhaps that's the problem. The disconnect. Uh, there's, there's some kind of. Mm. It's work for me. Yeah, mm. I think that's interesting. Great Mass is really not Great Mass. Great Mass is very. Great Mass is a very British sort of hero mm. character. And yeah. people he's up against, mm. the various military people, whatever it's all. It's British institutions that Nigel Neal is sort of. It's good at poking know, fun at and transforming. American milieu. Mm. Maybe not. Well, the uh, mizzle scene. Body to do. I think for the first sort of ninety minutes, it is a really original film. It's the last, you know, the, the sort of the last act. It just becomes very formulaic. But you know, like I said, I, I would forgive it for that, just for its originality. Uh, Dan, I think we said at the start of the podcast. Maybe this will convince you to revisit the film. Do you I think know. you will? I think so. Yeah, I think I think I'd like. You know, we've discussed it in, in quite in depth. So I would like to kind of go back and think. You know, like what what where do you you know get your opinions from and how its opinions from? And I want to kind of because I'm, I'm only half remembering it now. But the more we talk about, it, the more like yeah, I do remember that. I do remember this and this and that. But I would like to see it in its whole entirety and kind of give it a good watch. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Nice one. Well, there we conclude Howard's and my ruminations on Halloween 3 in our usual style. Many thanks to Spider Dan, the ever-spectacular, and also Steve Timms for their very important contributions there. Now it's time for us to go over to the recording that we made at the special fan screening of Halloween 3 in Bury, Lancashire in August 2018. There we'll be joined by an intrepid group of fans who've just re-watched the uncut version of the film and want to share their thoughts. But before that, here's my brief chat with the organiser of the event, Dave Moore, uber Halloween 3 fan, who explains his long-time obsession with the movie and his great collection of memorabilia. So Dave... Um it's been your inspiration for us to uh, to screen Halloween three today and to enjoy um, your amazing collection of of memorabilia and knowledge about the movie. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to be such a fan of the film and 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 came to know so much about it? Well, I think I was uh, I got well into films when I was maybe ten, nine or ten. So you're talking this is. 86, 87, 88, 89. We used to have a little TV in my bedroom and I was only allowed to watch telly up until 9 o'clock but I was 
um, you know, I'd love my films. Uh, we always had a Halliwell's film book in the house. I think they were like 1970s editions. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd memorised them, basically. I read them from page to page. Um, so whenever a film came up that was, you know, on the TV, I'd try and watch it. But, you know, I wasn't allowed to watch films after nine. So I've never even told my parents <laughs> this now you know, to this day. But what I used to do was just lie on my bed with my ha- watching films at the horror film was 10, you know, 10, 11 at night with my hand on the volume dial, which is also the off switch. So I'd need to sort of like, I'd watch, you know, an hour of the film. The whole whole film with my hand on that dial, and as soon as my door would go, I could hear them coming in to check his Dave asleep. It'd be twiddle the dial, right. play sort of dead, you well, play asleep, wait for them to go. So I watched lots of films um, in that method, you know, uh, in that manner. Sounds very familiar to me. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them was Halloween three, um, right. and I, I was just always intrigued by the film, and um, I loved everything about it. From certainly the soundtrack, I was always even as a young kid. Uh, mad on the carpenter scores i think i just happened to find out one day that hold on a minute there's all these films christine which we loved that was the first mm. film we ever recorded with a vid- when we got a video recorder the first film we we ever had recorded off the telly was christine right. so as you can imagine it got watched over and over and over again and we loved this me and my dad who was into lots of synthesized scores he liked the georgia moroder films he liked um we loved the blade runner the vangelis kind of stuff and oh, yeah. and we were like, oh, Christine's got a great soundtrack, hasn't it? Yeah, and then um, then I found there's this Halloween 3, and it had very, it sounded very similar sort of sound, loved that, and then there was The Thing. Um, you know, as another film I watched with my hand on, <laughs> hand right. on this little volume knob. That had a great score as well. Of course, it was a Carpenter film, but not a Carpenter soundtrack. It was a Morricone soundtrack, wasn't it? And, um, That's right. And, what uh, were and the Carpenter yeah, editions? Another one which was... Um, was Assault on Precinct 13, which, um, you know, we, me, me and my dad loved, and um, that had that fantastic minimalist, you know, Carpenter score again, and then oh, we, we just realised, hold on a minute, all these films with the, the, the scores we love, it, they're all John Carpenter. <laughs> I don't think we'd realise until we'd watched about five of them. Yeah, so anyway, so loved everything about Halloween 3. Um, the atmosphere, it's, uh, how low-key it was. Because even as a, you know, a young kid, I was watching like some of these Friday the 13th sequels, and it was, it was just teenagers getting it. was aimed at the, clearly aimed at the teenage market. Uh, there aren't really any teenage characters in Halloween 3, are that's there? That's exactly why I liked it, because it's ad- it, was ad- you know, it was adults. Another thing that's interesting is I suppose I saw Halloween 3 before I was aware of Halloween's existence. I watched it before 1 and 2, so I wasn't aware of Myers. Could you just give us a, a quick talk through um, the kind of merchandise that you've got? You've got a whole range of things. You've got the, the original novelizations of the film uh, in both, I think, British and American copies is that right it was a long time ago when i got these it's probably around i say i was a, a, always had a soft spot for halloween 3 but i probably had a proper period of obsession around sort of early 2000s so like 2005 2006 so most of this stuff was picked up around then i can see there's a an extended um, soundtrack there the limited edition soundtrack yeah. and of course you must tell us a little about the masks the Don Post masks. Well, it's, I think the the skull mask is a Don Post mask, um, but it's a repro. I don't know when I picked that up. That was actually quite recently, over the last four or five years. So it's the Trick or Treat Studio Studios uh, repros for the the witch and the pumpkin. Of course, the the skull and the witch were originally seventies Don Post masks. Yeah. Um, you know, on their existing catalogue, and then I think Carpenter and Hill commissioned Don Post to. 
produced the pumpkin, the jack-o'-lantern mask for the film, didn't they? So, um, I believe so, yeah. It's just a shame I've got such a big head and I can't fit into the pumpkin. I can wear the witch and I can wear the skull, but yeah. Well, there are a couple of Fangorias there, Wednesday. I'm not sure what edition it is, but there's a Halloween 3 on the cover, an October 82 Fangoria, I'm guessing. That's and that's a great cover, the, the latest thrill from Carpenter Hill. I love that. And there's another one with Evil Dead on the cover. It's got a shot of the most gruesome scene in the film. Yeah. Right on the front cover. Welcome to this special screening of Halloween 3, which has been uh, very kindly arranged by our friend Dave in this marvellous setting. These are the intrepid team who've just had the pleasure of watching the uncut version of Halloween 3 on the big screen. Um, and we thought um, we'd have a little discussion about everyone's reactions to the movie. Okay, hi, I'm Gemma. Um, I first saw this film probably when I was about 13, um, and then I've just seen it again now. Um, and it's very nostalgic for me. Um, I've really enjoyed it, and I've had a really good time watching it today. I just think it's a really great Hi, my name's Dan. I'm a massive horror fan, uh, long-time Carpenter fanboy, and, yeah, big fan of the Halloween franchise. Uh, my name's uh, Peter Slater. I'm an actor, writer, a comedian, and I'm a fan of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Saw it when I was, I don't know, about 10 years old, and I've always loved the film. Hello, I'm Steve Kame, I'm an actor, sketch writer, performer, comics enthusiast, film enthusiast. Uh, this was my first viewing of season, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I th first exposure to it was my mum describing it to me when she saw it some t time in Christmas 1986. Oh, oh hi, I'm uh, Gareth. I'm a uh, theatre producer, um, arcade machine enthusiast and, and big Carpenter fan like everyone here, I guess. I'm a particular fan of Halloween 3, the best of the lot. For me, Halloween 3 is one of those classic 80s films that has a second life on video, where it comes and goes on the cinema. I don't even remember it appearing um, in our Planned Nose Palladium or any of the posters, but I do remember the book. I remember, I remember, I definitely remember seeing the book in the shops, and I probably bought and read that, but it was a video for me. And it was a 15, which meant that, you know, you could probably hire it at 11 or 12 year old. It was usually okay. When I first watched this film many, many years ago, it confused the hell out of me because obviously I'd seen Halloween 1 and 2 and was a huge fan and then as most people that came to Halloween 3 you, you discovered this VHS and you watched it and it was almost a confusing experience because it's it's not a Halloween film I mean it is that you know it, years later you'd realize it's because they had this anthology idea and so they were trying to spin out the franchise but because there was no Michael Myers it was kind of like uh, I'm not really sure what's going on, you were kind of waiting for that penny to drop, and it never did. But watching it years later, you realise that it's actually a really great film in its own right. Um, I mean, it obviously stated in, in many ways, yeah. but it, like, it's a very tight film. Like, there's not a lot of scenes in it that, every scene that's in it moves the plot forward. So there's not a lot of fat on it, which I think is great about it. When I first came tonight, I was expecting to be a hokey, but I think it, I think it holds up really well. Oh, nice one. How about you, Gemma? I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think I first saw it when I was about 13, something like that. But the first bit that I heard about it was when my dad used to sing it all the time when I was little. <laughs> and I never made the association with it until I actually watched it. But he still sings it now, um, every now and again. But I, I think it's great. I mean, it's like, it's just on its own film. It's because obviously I like the Michael Myers ones, but this one's just totally different. And I really enjoy it. And 
think it's great. For my part, I discovered this movie on VHS in the uh, 90s. I already knew uh, a fair amount about it because of the of being a fan of the original writer Nigel Neal um, and I'd read um, a disparaging 1996 interview with him in SFX magazine um, where they asked him what had happened with that and why he took his name off it and I, I believe his quote was because I read this interview a lot and most of it's burned into my brain he said there was a tremendous amount in that script they shrunk it right down and filled it with things like people's heads being drilled. Awful, <laughs> crappy stuff like that. I said, <laughs> <laughs> Which was a typical Nigel Neal comment. I think it's unfair, actually. <laughs> I, think that, that, I think that is what has happened to that movie. I think there's lots of sequences and people who are just there to be graphically killed, like the tramp and mm. um, the pathologist. And, and yeah, that's right, all the meaty stuff with the, the Stonehenge and all that, that feels very Nigel Neal, but it is probably what... 20 minutes worth of stuff? Well, um, the director was in a Q&A uh, a couple of years ago where he claims that about 60% of the movie is from Nigel Neal's script. And actually, Stonehenge is not part of it. They added Stonehenge after he left the project. Really? Yeah, but they, they might... I think they, they must have had the glowing rock, though. Um, well, they obviously had something in the masks. Despite, you know, all of Neal's complaints, that's still a Nigel Neal film. You know, he... Mm. Um, it's got that... Um, you know, when we did, uh, it, it feels like a, you know, a, from the same guy who wrote Wine of India, which of course we did as a stage play many years ago. Mm. He, he clearly, you know, there's a lot of sympathy there for Cochrane, the villain. You know, he, he, he treats him quite sympathetically. You can almost imagine him thinking, yeah, he's, he, he's all right. He's going to wipe the world out of these horrible <laughs> little bastards and <laughs> set, the, set the clock back to a nice time where we just sacrificed the odd goat. <laughs> and, um, and, and and it's got a. Re I, I, I haven't really appreciated the very strong anti-capitalist message in there that that you know he's using all these marvelous new tools of the age you know the the mass marketing the frenzy the hype the TV to get everyone around the box and kill them. Mm. Um, so I thought that was really good and it, it felt like his film and and yeah all those things he's bothered about like overpopulation there's a there's a line I think where he says this is about us taking back control of our environment, which I take mm. is going back to simpler pagan times, but also disposing of 98% of the population as well, which is a very Nigel Neal concern. Mm. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was very good, but there were, I thought there was quite a bit of flab though, to be fair. I thought the opening, the opening I didn't need, I could have almost just had him run into the petrol station at the beginning and go, Ooh, we were all going to die. And that would have been enough. And the pathologist, I think, could have disappeared and we'd have lost nothing. The tramp could have disappeared. Um, we need the family, I suppose, that lovely hoaxy family just to share. Yeah, and, and they, apparently they do come straight out of Nigel Neal's original yeah, script, so almost unchanged. So yeah, it's great. Um, I, I enjoyed it as ever. The score is fantastic. It, it's, it's, I think it's a surprisingly modern piece, so yeah. Okay, still nice. love it. It's interesting that you think that, um, uh, in a way, Colonel Cochrane is quite a sympathetic villain because a lot of people read into that movie that Nigel Neal hated the Irish. But <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a Celtic man from the Isle of Man, isn't he? And yes. I think, you know, he's he's he wouldn't have. He, you know, it's interesting. He says Celtic and not Irish. Throughout. Oh, yeah, He talks about right. the old world and Celtic, which is which is Neil and. 
the Isle of Man, uh, although we all take the piss because of the fast show in the 90s and it's a slightly backward place, I'd imagine it's a deeply spiritual and pagan and, 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 a, and, a, and a very um, a, a sort of an elsewhere place. Mm. Um, you know, a bit more, you know, a bit more. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think he's just Irish as a default. I think maybe if he'd made it for British TV, he'd have been a maximum. Oh, I see what you mean. All right, that's interesting. And um, apparently it, it was based on an idea that Neil had for a BBC TV show that was rejected in the mid-70s. Never wasted. And, and he dug it up when they approached him to, to write Halloween 3. Steve, yeah. how did you enjoy the show tonight? Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. My first, um, my first memory of it, Halloween for three, third, Free was an entry in Radio Times in the late 80s when I was a little boy and I wanted to stay up and watch it. My mum said, No, you're not. And sent me to bed. I was about eight or nine years old at the time and then as a little boy, I had this real surreal memory, a little boy climbing into bed with mum going, Did you watch the film last night? And my mum giving me a, a blow blabble description of the <laughs> film, telling me about these masks that kill children and a Halloween thing. And I, I, I never saw it. But, I always meant to see it, but I always people told me it was rubbish. And I and I, I as a teenager watched the first Halloween. It was enthralled by it and fantastic. And I was a bit of a film stuff, and I thought, oh, Halloween theme's going to be rubbish. I'm not going to watch this again. So I forgot about it. And um, recent times, people have told me it's really, it's really, really good and it's underrated. Uh, I watched it. Watched it when I watched it today. Uh, enjoyed the hook. I thought some things had dated very badly. Just a second. So was today your first ever? My viewing? first time I've watched right? it. Right. Yeah. Wow. Watched it. Wow. So yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> but the things I had dated, like sexual politics, like the main guy mm. grabbing acid quite casually, and the, the the whole the love the kind of love story seemed a bit tacked on. There was no build up to that at all to me at all. Uh, yeah. I, I've always suspected that the the, the exchange <laughs> yeah. of dialogue. Where do you want to sleep, Dr. Chalice? <laughs> That's a dumb question, Miss Grimbridge. It was possibly not written by Nigel Neal. But I, I, think so. I could be wrong. I didn't think so. He sleeps in the car in Nigel Neal's draft. There's no shagging in a Neal script. Well, apart, from, apart from the year of the sex Olympics. If made now, it would probably be, it'd been some build-up. Um, but the performances were great. I like Tom Atkins. Uh, he's a fantastic character. And I, he was a bit of a schlub. Bit of a, he was finally sketched as well. You could see who, where he was. He was this medic, but who was divorced from his wife and basically got, had a massive drinking problem. Was a bit a little bit of a pleasure seeker. And he was a little bit of a impotent as a as a as a, as a, as a protagonist. He mm. didn't quite have the power to take on the CEO. Uh, Dan, what's his name? Dan O'Hurley. Hurley, right, that was right. It was fantastic as well. He reminded me a lot of Jervis Tetch, Batman, the CEO. It was quite kindly a grandfatherly that wanted to, you know, go back to old times. I like that whole Samhain thing. Where's that character from, Jervis Tetch? Jervis Tetch, you know the Mad Hatter? In Batman? In Batman, there's oh, a right. there's a villain called the Mad Hatter who yeah. controls people with hats, the whole mechanical, controls the personality. Oh, okay. So that reminded me a little of Jervis Tetch. Right. <laughs> the Mad, I eat a Mad Hatter from Batman. <laughs> um, I love the little prototype Wi-Fi technology that we have. Everything's got a Wi-Fi chip in it now, so it's it made now be quite current. Mm. And uh, yeah, I apart from Hockey Bits, it was a very solid horror film, and it was a great. Yeah. No, nice one. I'm really glad that we got someone here who's never seen it before and a fresh reaction. How about you then, Peter? I know you're a fan of this movie. Yeah, I am, I'm similar to Gary. I think I saw it probably mid eighties. I think I discovered it on video on TV one night. And um, 
the appeal for me was uh, knowing that uh, I mean there's a lot of elements um, John Carpenter was, was still involved he did the music he produced it Tom Atkins who I really rate as an actor and it was interesting because when I saw it it was just like oh where's Michael Myers but that quickly wasn't a problem because it's a really good film in its in its own right and it was great watching it again tonight because on a big screen so nice and small and it looked fantastic there's some uh, some of the shots in it are, are lovely because I think is it Dean Cundy who's the director of photography I mean he's done a lot of stuff with Carpenter and again it's just it's really well put together yeah there's, there's a few things where um you, you, you're laughing at it for all the wrong reasons, but as a whole, it's just an entertainment, you know, piece. And it's interesting because you've got like you've got like um, all these different elements. So you've got you know there's a bit of cheesiness, there's intellectual uh, levels there, but somehow it all it all for me it all all works. And and on that level, there's a piece of entertainment. It's not all out. It's not a gory gory horror outside. No. There's a there's a few moments where a lot of other Films of that time, because I remember this came out what eighty two, so the slasher films were still big then, and they were really on the ultra. This the sell for them was we're going to show you, you know, different ways of killing people, which I think is a big thing. What's still going on now, and that doesn't really interest me. What was great about this, what held my attention, was you've got a good, good characters, getting a great story, and it was a really pleasant surprise. It was just unfortunate that when it was marketed, it was like people, I guess, were expecting Michael Myers. Mm. And when that didn't transpire, I think it just got a, you know, probably a lot of, at the time, um, bad bad reviews. I, I'm not sure just because of that, or they were expecting more, or I think over the years it's been like kind of either rediscovered, and uh, rightly so because it's just it's just a great horror flick with sci-fi elements. Yeah, I mean, I I think. Two <laughs> Absolutely, bit of a spirit of Siskel and Ebert. There. Um, speaking of which, well, yeah, Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert hated it. He yeah. said it was one of his ten worst films of the year. Um, what was he well, watching? Ba- but based, based on what though? It's interesting just to see at the time because it, this always gets me sometimes with critics. It's like so it's, it's like a film like that. It's like saying it, but it's not trying to do. You know what's the message? It's, it is what it is. So if you can't like see, you know, an, an entertainment value in that, so we'd be looking at saying, well, why? Why is it? Mm. And then, mm, anyway. That's yeah, I, I think fight. I think there are two things that turned people against it at the time. One was the the Halloween fans who wanted the Halloween mm. three that was like the previous films and had yeah. Michael Myers in it. Um, and the other thing was the the level of. Like you say, it's not a very violent film, but it obviously does have a couple yeah. of really gruesome yeah. moments. Um, and, I, and I think that people couldn't deal with it, especially the fact that it kills children. Yeah, um, there's that in it, yeah. That's yeah. very uncommercial, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, not, it, it's implied, isn't it, as well? I mean, there's, I think there's one, there's one child who definitely yeah. da- dies in it. And then it's that in, impl- implication of, of like what's going to... Yeah, but but that is but because the whole plot of the film turns on a plan to kill Mm. loads of children, (laughs) which you can imagine kind of Nigel Neal laughing about that as he's writing it. Mm. Uh, Maybe there's a slight assumption that all adults hate children. (laughs) I don't know. One thing that did occur to me watching that is that that between them they've made the perfect Doctor Who big budget episode on the screen. It is only missing the Doctor. You know, everything about that is a Doctor Who episode. Apart from the ending being black mm. as night, so mm. 
But that, that, that would work perfectly as a 19th well, Doctor Who story. It's well, a simple... Forget the protagonist is a Doctor. He is a Doctor, yeah. Doctor Chalice Who. He's um, a great Doctor Who villain, um, Cochrane. Yeah, there's an, an evil plot, an evil base. Yeah, the, the, the Bond yeah. villain. It's well. Bond-esque Bond and also the Avengers. Got all Tom's in it. You know, in fact, it, it, it is a big-budget remake of Alan Moore's Business as Usual. And oh, for, the ta- for the time as well, when you think, um, in this day and age, like when they're going into this town in the factory where the masks are being made and they've got all the you know cameras, I mean, that's the norm now. We've been watched all the time. And then it's like with the, the masks, that idea of like you put these masks on, you watch this at a certain time. This idea of like, with the brainwashing, like the general public, watch this, this could happen. You're talking about, I think you mentioned um, his... Uh, was it uh, Nigel Neal about the you know overpopulation? Mm. That's a big is- issue now. Governments how they're going to handle it? They will never tell you directly, but I tell you what, maybe they, they could put something in the television, send out a message where you don't know we could watching something, send a thing, bang. Let's I mean, is that killed today? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. so no, I think it taps into an interesting yeah, thing. Does, the mass, it's really frightening because it's in the adverts. I I, I mean, I, this wasn't a thing for me, but Ian Winston will tell you. Who, who, I think a few of us know him. Good writer in Manchester. He grew up in what they call the BBC house, where they were not allowed to watch ITV. So Ian Winterton and, and all of the people who weren't allowed to watch ITV would be all right. Which <laughs> <laughs> probably includes Nigel Neal. So. Uh, I don't know. He, he, he hated the BBC by this point, I think. Yes, he did. Um, but I'm sure he hated the adverts and slumming it on ITV as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, although I, I know you, Peter, are a fan of uh, Nigel Neal's TV show called Beasts. Oh yeah, I did. Well, that was through Steve. I, I, in right. fairness, I haven't seen all. I've only seen one, the one with the old cup and the rats. Right. But I, know, well, I think Martin. you 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 uh, you yeah. got me onto Beasts, and you've seen all those. Yeah. Well, Beasts is a really fascinating series uh, for anyone who doesn't know it. It's a 1976 ITV drama, and um, it's an anthology series. Every episode is a bit a different tale about that involves humans interacting with animals in some way. Some of them are really weird and really good, and some of them. Um, aren't and I kind of think that this movie it sums up Neil in the same way that Beast does in that there's always a fascination and uh, a real intelligence to it although sometimes that comes out bad Um, Mm. some of the episodes of Beasts are really terrible but some are really great and I kind of think the um, Halloween 3 is kind of the same Uh, like I mean for instance I think that um, it's an absolutely amazing idea, but I don't think he's really put himself in the American situation. Uh, lots of American fans kind of pointed out the fact that this would never work as a scheme. There's too many time zones in America. The adverts would go out yeah, all at different right, times. Right, right. um, and, you know, things like that. Um, when I spoke with Howard about it and Steve Timms uh, when, in our earlier recording for the podcast, uh, I feel like I wasn't positive enough about it because um, Howard was very good at pointing out all the flaws in the movie and I think that it's kind of hard to argue with. I think the movie's really entertaining, I agree with you, mm. uh, Peter. I just think it's fun and it doesn't... It is at no point boring. Well, Even the bits that are kind of bad and unnecessary kind of keep your interest. There's to it. You know, my, yeah. the line that I, I laughed about is... Where, I mean, Cochrane's having such good fun with it when he goes... Um, he talks about how they, the, you know, the, the stone again. He shows goes. You wouldn't believe what we had to go through to get this here. Smiles and walks off, and that's it. No other explanation required. Yeah, that, it's been, that, yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah. It presupposes yeah. that the audience is going to take that that step into suspension yeah. of disbelief. Mm. They, they and just assumes they're along for the ride. Yeah. yeah. 
On the other hand, she's she's so brilliantly rubbish. The um, the the main the main girl in it. The, the oh, do you think she's rubbish? Yeah, Stacey Logan. Pretty lightweight, and, and and the fact that he just magically finds her strapped to a table, and then she doesn't say a word and doesn't blink or anything. Well, that's the point. That's well, no, yeah. yeah, but but she's just there to turn up. So for that one scene in the car. Oh yeah, it. I know, and that's a that's I don't think that's the actress's fault. I think that's no. a writing problem. And well, watching that's it, get typical. That, that's the the, the Waffle Marky type. She's the quintessential femme fatale. She comes in and she basically takes him down the rabbit hole. Oh, that's but she doesn't no, stop I, him I, from ruining the plan. See that she can just push him over the balcony at any point. Oh no, yeah. there, there are plot holes. Yeah, <laughs> it's a huge plot. Hole. Steve, she bungles it. I mean, she she goes to the, the, the there's a scene where, they, where she sees a car, and I, I know it's because you, you need that plot device to get a, to get the bad guys onto them. Yeah, which was that's my dad's car and draws attention to it while all his men are watching yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. he was like. I can see why you're getting I think, she is, I think she yeah. is the main problem in film for me, Oz, because, you know, I said to you, we had a chuckle on the sofa where they go to bed, and I said, well, you know, everyone handles grieving in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a huge problem, yeah. yeah. Well, but I think that, that was so typical yeah. of... See, what we interested know is that with that script, what was so typical of that was... So it was, a, it was a horror movie, and then they'd go, well, we've got to have a sex scene, and that was the form of, so there'd be a lot of form of yeah. things. So now the, it would be nice to was that in the script, or was it pressure from the studio saying we need this, or was it a director going, well, we, we need that? It would be interesting to like, hear from them, like saying, what was in that script? Was the pressure from the studio going, well, you've got to have a sex scene, we've got to have a bit of nudity, because this is aimed at, it was aimed at like a, a younger, younger American. Yeah. So that's that thing, there's, there's certain bits in it where it's like, you know, well, the, the good guy's got to be like this, and it's like ticking all the boxes, and that's the danger sometimes when it's, because obviously that was, that, that would have a decent, not a ridiculously massive budget, but a decent, a good budget, mm. and that's the problem with, um, if it's part of a studio system, mm. is like they want product, and they think, well, we've got to have this, got to have that, so they say, no, 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 let's go the other way, and what was great about this was, it was trying to go the other way, but you felt like they were, we need that there, yeah. we need this deaf scene. Oh, she's got to have a drill in her head. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd love to know how much John Carpenter had actually had an influence on it. Because, because he was although, a producer, isn't he? Yeah, well, but you know, as, as the creator of the franchise, I mean, he's not got a writing credit per se, but mm. he must have had a hand in um, certain he, decisions. He, he chose not to have a credit for writing it, but the, the, it is stated by Tommy Lee Wallace that the script is co-authored by him and, and Carpenter from Nigel Neal's original. Um, so he's definitely got a lot in there. Also, the, the basic direction of it, the whole idea of it not being a Michael Myers movie came from Carpenter and Hill. Yeah. And it, it is said, I haven't seen this enough to, for it to be corroborated, but it is said that when they were basically sued, they were strong-armed into doing Halloween 2, they didn't want to do it. Right. And when they did that, they said that the deal they made was, OK, we'll do Halloween 2 for you, but when we do Halloween 3, we want complete control of it. And was the idea, because was this the idea of they were going to do different completely, so then, so the year after for Halloween they could do something, I don't know, something about a, a vampire and they were going to do completely different yeah. horror yeah. themes. it was like they'd, they'd get a different writer and director every year and wow. Carpenter would give them an idea. But apparently the idea he gave to Nigel Neal was do something about witchcraft in the computer age. Right, okay. Which I think Nigel Neal actually did it. Yeah, so yeah, that really great. good. And it, yeah. that, that holds up really now, especially with all you know, the technology aspect. Yeah. I think, really it, does. in a way, it might be even more credible now because, yeah, like Steve it. says, you, you, you wouldn't do it through TV, you'd do it through Wi-Fi. Yeah, your mobile, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. You could make it global. 
all at the same time. Yeah. Simul cats. So, what just came into my head? I haven't seen that film in a lot of years, but the one thing what always stuck in my head was that music for the advert, mm. which I think just shows you how powerful that is. Because that was the whole point of that. that was like amazing. when you put this jingle on and when you watch this and that sticks in your head, that says it for a lot of things. When you're thinking like you remember, well, why, am I, why am I singing that tune? You've just heard it a second. The power of like there was this definitely for me anyway. There's a message that's in like the power of the television. Mm. Well, because that tune that did, did, reminds did, me did, the did, most did. of Baylor. Yeah. It's like mm. the, the monster yeah. isn't really like so. Halloween one and two, Michael Myers is a very visceral human, albeit you know this force of nature antagonist. Whereas in Halloween three, I mean. Cochrane is the villain as such, but technology is the real monster, and consumerism as well. Yeah, and the greed that. is the hook, and the technology is the axe that will... will get rid Even of the robots are uh, zombies, just mm-hmm. like, you know, we get in there live, and uh, you can see those themes really yeah. kind of... Yeah. Uh, so we'll give you what you want, you want more, well, we'll, we'll yeah, give yeah. it to you, but there'll, there'll be a bigger prize. In a way, the, the, the film is, itself is like a metaphor for that, because I think... The kind of zombie characters, the besuited henchmen killers. I'd love to read Nardin in the script firstly to see if they're in it. Mm. Because I feel like they've added that because it's like they know that the audience want Michael Myers. Mm. They want a silent, slow-moving stalker killer guy. And it's like, okay, we'll give you that, but not the way you're expecting. They're nicely competent, though, as henchmen go. I particularly like the scene where Tom Atkins has escaped from the room and one goes out, you know, mask, grill. <laughs> There's no messing around there. <laughs> the communication of that intent over a silent CCTV is, is, is you know, just, you know, and then the other guys you go right. Mm, yeah. It's like watching a public information film about the Tory Party. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that on the poster. Now, and I, I had a question for you, Dan, because you've obviously thought about this a lot. This feels like the perfect vehicle for Carpenter. You know, he's managed to get his 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 most revered writer to work with him on a project for the first time. It's something fresh and new, and it's something that he's had this guaranteed creative control. So why doesn't he direct it? Why does he give it to Tommy Lee Wallace? Who's was he doing Christine at the time? Uh, Christine came was, out that same year, didn't he? No, it's The Thing, The Thing came out. So oh, 82, oh. so it was 82, um, so yeah, yeah, The Thing. Um, and, uh, well... But Dean Cundy's doing it. So. Yeah, that's, no, he could have done both. Um, that's, it's a really good question. Um, I know that he really wanted Tommy Lee Wallace to direct after, because Tommy Lee Wallace was the designer and the editor of Halloween. And when they came to do Halloween 2, Carpenter wanted him to direct it, and he offered it to him. But when Tommy Lee Wallace became aware that it was going to be a studio formula movie, and it, they just wanted kind of the Halloween again, but more... Uh, he said, no, it's not for me. I want to do something original. Right. So Carpenter knew when they, when Halloween 3 was coming up that Tommy Lee Wallace was uh, into that. Having said that, Tommy Lee Wallace wasn't the original director. Joe Dante was the original director. Oh, yeah, that's that's so. that would, yeah. It's a very Dante it film. Is, actually, so, yeah, you could have if you said yeah. Joe Dante's director, you go, yeah, definitely. Um, so I don't know, really. It's an odd one for him to pass on, because, you know, having put all these ingredients in place... He's not going to be messed with. He's got his script, he's got his writer, he's got creative control, budget control. To then say, I'm not going to do it, feels like an odd decision. I think maybe he just kind of was so invested in the thing, which yeah. he still loves the most of all the movies he made. Yeah. Um, that he, and, and, you know, obviously Dean Cundy could probably do those two movies in one year because the nature of his job is just on and off. Maybe but Carpenter was something there, Dan, because having 
watched and read lots of about the thing, he, I know he was shattered by the, the critical panning mm. and the box office failure of the thing. Mm -hmm. And maybe that cracked his confidence at just the wrong moment where he couldn't, he couldn't put himself back in the chair for that. Do, do we know why? Uh, because also when this came out, because I'm, I'm sure it did well at the box office, but it wasn't as, didn't do as well as they were expecting. I was just wondering why they didn't do another like Halloween with this idea what Carpenter had of it'll be a completely different story like the year, a year or two after because it was about 88 when Halloween 4 came out and lo and behold it was back to Michael Myers and all this I think the pushback just against the fact that Michael Myers wasn't in it yeah basically it's the financier isn't it I guess and it's, the producer yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really weird because it was considered a massive flop and a disaster at the time despite the fact that its budget was two and a half million dollars and its US box office receipts came to 14 and a half million which is really good because they reckon so if it cost you know what, what was it two two and a half million yeah so, so they, they reckon to like recoup its cost they have to make up five million so it easily yeah. made its money back so that's why I was really surprised they didn't go well there's still hope mm. in, in you know but, but apparently possibly most of the money they did make was on the opening weekend when nobody knew what it was like yeah. and the word of mouth afterwards was horrible that people hated it it's a cheeky tagline though you know the night i love mm -hmm. the night no one came home but mm. it does unfortunately also link it to halloween yeah it's well, i think, clever, it, does, I think it links the films really well i think it's not an accident that it starts in a hospital and then moves away to yeah, Halloween to finish yeah. in a hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, the way that they've got the pumpkin at the beginning, it's, mm. it's, a, it's a, obviously a callback to the previous Halloween films, but it's done differently. It's very it's much a case of... Well, it's, it's, it's like it's foreshadowing the technology, yeah. like the aspect. But would it be interesting to think if that was released, it wasn't called Halloween 3 and it was called, you know, the night they yeah, didn't the came home or something ridiculous yeah. like <laughs> Death Mask or something. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Nigel Neal would probably hate that one, oh. Death Mask. Yeah. Well, this is the thing, you've got this conflict. If, if, if someone was in marketing, they know they could sell mm. that going like, you did, you know, you get a post with these masks and go, death mask, which one will you choose? Or something like that. <laughs> and then, so what was that? Yes. We'll do our own version of this. We'll call it death mask. <laughs> what do you think of the better aspects of them having Halloween, the film in the film itself? Yeah. I, I always thought that was I thought that was genius because it's almost like yeah. that's make belief. This is your world, yeah. but you know, yeah. and for then and for then that would have yeah. that was really such a, a rarity because now you'd probably get that more. But for then that was probably one of the first movies that did that. That he little cheeky thing, wink though. scene. He does it with the thing in Halloween? Oh, when yeah. yeah, but he hadn't made yeah. the thing. Yeah, made but it's in his head though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that I want to do. Well, yeah, it's so a lovely so. little touch that, and then they yeah. bring it back again towards then where. Well, and the way Halloween when, when Cochran says "Happy Halloween" and the Halloween music kicks in, yeah, it's too. just great. Mm. Um, yeah, but it, I think you're right, Dan. It's like because it's there in the movie, it shifts the universe. You know that you're not watching the sequel. It's another mm. take on mm. on the idea. I thought it'd make a nice black mirror. That yeah. also came to me watching this. You can yeah. edit that tightly down to fifty minutes, and it'd make a lovely black mirror. And I think Black Mirror is very much Charlie Brooker being Nigel Neal. Yeah. And it, and it always has been. Yeah, it's a bit Twilight Zone as well. You mm. can see that. Everything from the defeat of Cochrane on is a bit rubbish. And, um, and that's mm. but, I, but it's still entertaining. I mean, even the sequence at the end where Stacey Nelskin attacks you and falls to bits, I think is a bit rubbish. But I do mm. enjoy it. I think. And, and everything is quite well done. And this, I'll say this in defence of Stacey, Stacey Nelkin as well. 
One, she was the only thing in the movie Roger Ebert liked. He does a great quote at the end of his review where he talks about how, how strong her performance is and then says, what a pity she does her last scene without a head. Um, and I think her performance is really good. I, just, I think it's the way she's used in the script that is, is weak. But I mean, for instance, I think that the whole I'm going to give away my dad, my father's car and make a spectacle, yeah. it works emotionally, <laughs> I think. And I love the, the long shot. I think somebody it's might have. Right, yeah. some, when when the, this long shot happened and you see her go back to Chalice and she hugs it, yeah. and you could sort of see that emotion from that huge distance. Mm -hmm. And someone, one of you guys, or, um, or, or one of the people who's left, kind of went, <laughs> so, you know, although the, the whole thing of her being a robot at the end, but she helps him defeat Cochrane doesn't make any sense. I, 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 I yeah. thought that she was human from the get-go, and then during that time when they got hold of her, yeah. they made her into a robot. That was the impression I always got from that. Oh, yeah. That's what I made into. I, I didn't, I didn't I think she was a robot from the get-go. Oh, no, I, I no, I, I think it was... It, it's right. definitely the bit... You know, when... Um, What's Tom Atkins comes back to the motel and he finds she's gone and then the, the guys chase her. And I think the implication is that they've taken her away at that point and made a copy of her. And it's basically the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. So when he finds her again, she's a robot now, but she still helps him defeat Cochrane's plant. Yeah, that's flawed, isn't it? Um, but... Yes. Oh, it's a terrible Although maybe she's, <laughs> not, maybe she's not activated properly. Because she's yeah. just wandering around like a little puppy dog well, zombie thing. What I so, like yeah. is watching it, having seen it before, knowing that she's a robot. I think her performance is subtly different in those last few oh, scenes. Oh, it's so subtle, Dan. Well, I don't. She, obviously, she never says anything, but there's just something about the way she moves and looks at him and things that are just a bit different. Yeah, yeah I need to uh, watch that again. Um, maybe. I'm now, I had a question for you. Um, we, we all we all laughed at Cochrane's little end, where you know everything mm. goes zapped, and then he gets zapped by the blue stone and zapped by the telly. And there's this incredible sort of joyous grin as he falls mm. to pieces. Joyous plastic yeah, latex like, grin. Yeah. Do you think that is just is what it is? It's like. Cochrane has done his job now, so we don't need him in the plot. And we're just amusingly dissolving. I think it was a bit of like I, I'm still going to win because you're not going to. You might have stopped this, mm. the factory, but you're too I've, late. I've got what I've wanted. You, yeah. you're, you're too late, and you're going to. You're screwing it over. <laughs> yeah. I think you might be right. Um, I, I don't know because, to be honest, having only seen it on poor quality VHS before, I could never make out the expression on his face when he was killed. He's delighted, isn't he? Um, I, I th I th to be honest, the impression I got was, oh, they've reused the rubber mask of Ian Holm from the end of Alien when he's got that stupid grin on his face. I just didn't think it was. It's a shame because, yeah, um, because I would imagine that, you know, it got to 10 to 9, that'd be it. He'd be going up to his little office, he'd get his little thing, his dram of putching out, you know, maybe have a nice glass of goat's blood or whatever he's going to have to then watch all the news channels as, as everything falls apart. Right. Well, I, just think I had a ridiculous idea then where if it, like it was studio executives and they watched that and they were, oh God, where's Michael Myers? And I'd go, right, this is what you do. So at the very end, so Tom Atkins is on the phone, he's like, turn it off, turn it off. He goes, stop, stop, stop. And then Tom Atkins wakes up. Oh, it's all a dream, and then he opens it up. Michael Myers then stabs him, and, goes, <laughs> yeah. and then the yeah, credits roll. Yeah. And then I guess there, there we, there we go. You, a good <laughs> we've given you Michael Myers. <laughs> Tom, you know, in that end, that that is a problem because he's got nine minutes or something. He gets in the poor bugger in the petrol station again. Yeah. Has his second madman in the week. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> everyone's going to be killed. Yeah. 
And then he manages to get two of the channels taken off air. Just go, no, look, I can't prove this, but everyone's going to die. I really, really don't show this. But he can convince those two yeah. broadcasters, but not his wife. And they go, well, that's why. Cochran has spent multi millions pounds, you know, buying every advert, all the airtime. This is his big thing. But no, fuck it, we're just going to. You know. They must be like a sort of regional. He could be like a major stations who he's getting through. Yeah. And, and, to, and to be fair as well, to to the plot hole about there being different time zones. Mm. That would have been, you know, three o'clock Eastern time and something yeah. else. So they just still have the giveaway. Yeah, it was, it in was the still, other time yeah, zones. Yeah, they were still, yeah, they were still, they still doing garbage. Yeah, yeah, you'll yeah. have to watch the Magic Pumpkin in New York at five in the afternoon. To be you know. fair, yeah, kids would have stayed up all night for Halloween if there's a special yeah. thing on it, yeah. like a telephone. And also, um, this is the point to, to add, that uh, the, the voice going, it's time, kids. Is Tommy Lee Wallace, oh, if anybody right. didn't know oh. that. And he's also... It's like Christopher Ziggins. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same voice in Halloween 1, because they're watching a horathon on mm. in that with the thing and Forbidden Planet. And it's his voice on there as well. Yeah, also, the voice, you know when uh, Tom Atkins uh, is, is trying to get... Th- uh, I think it was Tom Atkins he's trying to get through, and there's a female voice. Was, it, was that the voice on... Uh, escape from New York. And was that Deborah Hill? Because I'm sure Jamie she did. Jamie Lee Curtis. Curtis. Yeah. So that was on Halloween 3 doing that. Yeah, oh, although it's know. weird because at that convention that I've seen with Tommy Lee Wallace, somebody asked him that and he said, no, it's apocryphal, but it's Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. It's definitely Jamie Lee Curtis. You just like have Jamie. to listen to it. In Halloween 3, yeah, I thought, because yeah. I, I was saying that, that's from Skip and Chats. Yeah, certainly um, the operator. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although um, she may have no memory of doing it. Because it was like an hour's work yeah, <laughs> in yeah, yeah. So, so what happened uh, to Tommy Lee Wallace in his career then? Because like, he's always been he sort of part right, of right hand man. He did. Yeah. did as well, didn't he? The he did the TV series, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, that was, that was yeah. actually really good. So yeah. what's he got to do now? Tommy, is he just... Uh, the last credit I'm aware of, I can see Steve's getting on the IMDb, he's probably got a good update for us. The last credit I'm aware of is he directed the sequel to John Carpenter's Vampires, which came out in 2000, oh, and it's called Vampires Los Muertos. Is that with just Bon Jovi? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's three. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I've never seen those. I really wanted to watch it when I heard that he directed it, but um, I, then I heard it was even worse than John Carpenter's Did Vampires. Did you do anything for the Masters of Horror anthology? Because I know John Carpenter's Cigarette Birds is yeah. fabulous. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that that's is good. really good. I don't think so. No, no. I don't know. That's a shame. Yeah. Any credits after Vampires Lost Mortals? No, you're absolutely right. That's the last. Cre- oh, not Queen Projects. It says something called Heliversity. That's <laughs> <laughs> a great. Death Nobody knew what we knew of. But it's called Heliversity. <laughs> and I mean, it's a plot line, not a reason. That's in development. Wow. Let's end by saying something that we each really enjoyed about the movie. Um, I'll start. One thing I realised recently is I love the fact that Carpenter made this movie and The Thing in the same year. Mm. Not just Carpenter, but Dean Cundey, mm. Alan Howarth being involved with the music. Um, I just think, even if you pull Halloween 3 to bits, there's so much in it that's interesting and different. It's a weird mix of a bit hokey and a sort of weird masterpiece, I think. And then you realise that The Thing was made at the same time. And I just think that's a hell of a year's work for anyone, really. And actually, even Nigel Neal kind of acknowledged that, I think, because even though he was quite bitter about Halloween 3 for a long time, and um, like later on in the 80s when Capita tried to homage him by 
writing oh, Prince yeah. of Darkness under the name Martin Quatermass. <laughs> Nigel <laughs> Neal hated that he did that. And, and there was a newspaper interview where Nigel Neal said, I haven't seen this new movie, but it sounds pretty bad. <laughs> Dismissing it completely. But I think in the last years of his life, Nigel Neal kind of mellowed. And he did say in one interview, um, I think with a Channel 4 series called SFUK, he said that um, he, he didn't like what happened to Halloween 3, but he didn't really blame John, and John was very busy on the thing, and Nigel Neal was a fan of the thing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, which was, I guess, pretty unique in, in 1982, anyway. So um, so that's my the, the thing I love about the movie. Um, Dan, have you got anything else you'd like to note? Um, I genuinely think that struck me the most was the score. I think it's one of Carpenter's, I know wasn't the only person behind it, but I think it's one of his... Not lesser known, but I think it's a, it's a genuine masterpiece from Carpenter. There's no standout tracks that you you know as iconic as the Hall- Halloween One theme, but I think in terms of the atmosphere it brings to the film, it's really really great. Um, it's the kind of thing you could probably stick on and just listen to throughout, and you have a really great time with it. Yeah, I think the score's fantastic. And I'm so glad you said that because I thought that's the only thing we've not really talked enough <laughs> about was the music. I, I do I do think the music, which is apparently half composed. Like, literally, one track will be by John Carpenter and the next by Alan Howard. I think it's how they did it. Um, and, yeah, I do think it's a fantastic, eerie, mm. um, quirky... This movie and watching Halloween 1 made me realise that Carpenter is really good at scoring dialogue um, or scoring speeches because the the iconic scene in Halloween 1 where Donald Pleasance talks about the boy with the blackened eyes oh, yeah, yeah. the music is so great in that mm. and every moment in this movie that Dan O'Hurley has um, like a meaningful drops a meaningful few lines and the music comes in my favourite bit I think for good reason many people cite Dan O'Hurley his big you know the festival of Sowen speech mm. as a highlight of the movie and I think it is but I also love the bit where uh, Tom Atkins has just pulled the head off that automata woman, mm-hmm. and um, and Dan O'Hurley picks, picks it up. Yes, <laughs> a rare piece, German. Yeah. And there's something about his voice and the way the music comes in. You kind of want him to carry on. You want him to tell you loads more about the history of this. You know, it's just so perfectly done. I think um, and hypnotic, and I think that that's a lovely quality. There's a simple moment in the title screen where it's it's like the digital pumpkin that's following Mm. the eyes and the music goes along with the little pixels. Yeah, Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that um, I I think the music was composed without the uh, sort of pixel notes and then when they saw the animation they went and added in the kind of stuff but I think it keeps in key. Yeah. You know, it's it's just a really effective kind of opening. Yeah. I'm so um, glad uh, Black Lace didn't... Because uh, <laughs> they were originally going to do this score. Like, it's so sense. So, thank goodness for Carpenter and Alan Howarth. We could do it a... It is Alan Howarth, isn't it? It is oh, Alan Howarth. Howarth yes. Yeah. Um, we could do a fan supercut, put it on YouTube. That'd be funny, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the original Black Lace score. Yeah, that's um, well. How about you, Gemma? Um, is there anything that stands out about the movie? Um, I just think it's, like you say, really atmospheric. I think the music's excellent in it. Um, I love the mask. I, lo- I just love everything about it. And I love the bit where it has the mask on the CCTV camera. <laughs> <laughs> like, what would happen if it had not gone on there? What would he have done? Yeah. <laughs> just, I just think it's... <laughs> yeah. I just really enjoy it. And it's just kind of very um, nostalgic as well. 
watching it again. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Anything else from you, Gareth? Um, yeah, I mean, just, it's great hearing everyone talk about it and some reflections. I think right. something that you said, Dan, it, it, it really stuck with me since you said it, is there's, there's so much here that he's ideas he's trying out for the first time, like um, that, yeah, the idea of, of, of evil and, and things hidden in technology, which is in They Live, mm. the, um, uh, the whole anti-capitalist message and, 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 the, and that sort of genial, slightly evil capitalist overlord and all the things that he'll revisit appear here for the first time. So this is almost the first rung of his escape ladder from corporate Hollywood, which is treating him quite badly at that time mm. and will continue to que- treat him quite shoddily until he, he gets out of it and goes back to Indy. So I think it's a very important and overlooked film, but there's a lot in there that he will come back to and refine. I think it does stand as the lost, not the lost, but the additional Carpenter film. Mm. Not, not to take away from Tommy Lee Wallace, who I think does a fine job directing it, but I think there's a, you can tell that he's Carpenter's protege, mm. and combined with Dean Cundy... It is a bit Carpenter's greatest hits in some ways, that's, mm. that's the negative thing. Like, for instance, you know, like the, uh, the henchman guys... The way they'll suddenly appear in shot, and then there's a sting, mm. and then they're lit in a particular way, which is almost exactly the way that um, uh, Wilfred Bramley appears mm. at, at bits later on in the thing. It's almost sort of shot for shot, mm. score for score. And there's nothing wrong with that, because I think it's perfectly pleasurable, but it's a shame that it lacks the confidence to be something fresh in the way that they live is very fresh. Yeah. Five years later. Steve? Above all, the fantastic line with Tom. Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins screams, it's time to get the Marines in. <laughs> Midway through a slug of whiskey. Yeah. on t-shirts. If I say it was an interesting failure, would I would have been in trouble when I pissed people off. No, no if oh, I was reckon you know. Interesting failure, all flawed genius, but I think it's... Uh, it's, it's it, it, it basically pisses on a lot of um, successes, and it's, I, think it's, I think the movie is going to stay with me. And it's um, all the interesting stuff you've also been Nigel Neal being involved as well. It's been very educational, and I think I've overlooked this film for so many years now. It was on to see it today. Seven-year-old Steve was onto something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, and you got to see it for the first time in widescreen uh, on cult. I've no, I'd never Did seen that before. Did your mum sell it? My mum made it sound really awesome. <laughs> okay. It's the same with the tune as well. <laughs> you know what I noticed this time was um, in the big sequence at the end where all the kids in all the in all the different states filmed in Los Angeles are all buying the masks and you hear the full tune and like towards the end it has this really kind of nice tweet like fluty bit I'd never noticed that before and I love the kind of craft of that the, the black humour of it, it you know the kind of three more days till Halloween that actually is kind of a bit annoying and the kid's singing it when he goes round to the house which yeah. is really brilliant because that's exactly what you know it's been his job well yeah it's, it's in there and, and then it does stick but then the thing is in real life it does stick with you that's what I'm saying that's the one thing I always remember that film is, is that is that tune yeah. Which is very powerful. It's almost like you went, God, that's so annoying. It's perfect. Yeah. It's going to stick yeah. in your head. Anyone who's seen that film, and I bet the majority of people will go, and they'll start humming it and they will know it instantly. Yeah. Or if you put an image up of those masks, you go, oh, that's Halloween 3. So those masks in themselves, like the Michael Myers masks, they've become pretty iconic yeah. in one way, along with Tom Atkins' his mustache. <laughs> 
<laughs> Bring back to We've got to say thank you to Dave, uh, a yeah, connoisseur oh, yeah. of, of, of Halloween 3 for bringing us together and, and all these wonderful Fantastic. No, no, absolutely. Thank you the so much. The best screen I've ever been to. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> is it, um, Dave, is there anything different in the book? Because the books are quite often based on earlier drafts of the scripts. I remember there was a scene in there um, where the Kupfer family um, are given an award because that's why they're there basically. Oh, they're, right. they're basically there to, they've sold the most masks yeah. in the region, yeah. so they're collecting an award. And they're awarded a shield or something like that. Right. Um, but it's not in the film. But there is a scene in the film, I think it's as they're wa- walking from outside, from inside the factory and um, outside onto the sort of balcony towards the final processing door. And you can see, um, see them holding, I think the kid's holding something. You can see the kid holding oh, okay. what looks like a shield. So back when I was proper obsessed with this film, about 12 years ago, or 13 years ago, I actually emailed Brad Schachter, who was the actor who played Little Buddy, right. and asked him, could he remember anything about this? And he said he, he remembers a scene where there was some applause, but he, he, he wasn't 100% because he was yeah. in probably August, seven or eight or it was something. Um, in America, cause it's, not, it's not a proper release over yet, like a special edition, but in America there's the is it Shout Factory. Is there any like, deleted scenes on that or anything? There's no... Because it just feels like when you watch it, it's like, I wonder if scenes have been... Because mm. there's, there's a talk of a bit, what was it, the a father's funeral, which says thanks for coming to the funeral. Yeah. And you do wonder, like, sometimes, was there a bit more of the funeral and stuff like that, if there's any more mm. scenes? It's a shame they missed out the shield bit, because actually that, that's even more cold, you know, like yeah. evil bastard Cochrane has invited them there with his wicked sense of humour, so he's mm. give him a talk, give him a shield. Yeah, I think yeah. this is great. I mean, now, 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 now you while you really value your opinions, lock, lock, lock. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight more days to Halloween, and, uh, mm. yeah. I seem to remember there was more time spent with him picking out the masks um, for the kids, you know, the, the, the no, rubbish plastic there masks. There is, because I, I just... I've not read this, but on YouTube, there's a guy on YouTube who reads novelizations of horror movies <laughs> in their entirety for you to listen to, and there is Halloween nice. 3 on that. And I've listened to the first sort of chapter or so, and it, and it has him going to the, the shop um, to buy them. And, uh, and it's actually quite lengthy. It's all about how... How much he he knows that his his wife's going to be angry with him, and he's got to desperately get his kids a present, and he just happens to go he into a shop. Crap and, <laughs> I think he he wants to buy them some some kind of cool game, but then realizes he can't afford it, so he just buys them Halloween masks. So in the script, I think the original script, he buys them the silver shamrock masks, and he gets home and finds that the the the, the mother has bought them normal masks mm-hmm. whereas it, then they changed it around for the shooting so that she's bought them the shamrock masks because they didn't want him to be the villain by buying them the lethal masks mm-hmm. as a final note then um you may all be aware i don't know if you are that originally his movie wasn't called halloween 3 season of the witch when nigel neil wrote the script apparently on the front page it just says halloween 3 working title because he couldn't be bothered to come up with a title for it <laughs> tommy Lee wallace named it season of the witch based on a donovan song that he likes <laughs> um, so that uh, my question to each of you is what would you have named it i think we've already got your suggestion death mask <laughs> that's, that's the whole studio suggestion mine would be the Halloween three, <laughs> because the reason there's three masks in it is because Nigel Neal was clever oh. and went, it's Halloween three, there should be a three thing in it. So I've just got it, the Halloween three. Or the mask of Halloween. Go on, Steve. My rubbish one. I, I thought, should I call it Shamrock? But I wanted rubbish. Like it said to come back. I wanted a big giveaway. 
The big giveaway. Yeah, that we, like a game nice. show. Well, no, that, I think it'll be good. And actually, um, the unmade TV series that mm. Nigel Neal kind of took part of the ideas for this from was called The Big Giggle. Oh. It was about a TV show aimed at teenagers that was like a comedy show, but it killed them. So that's quite a Nigel Neal title, I think. Just to interject, wasn't I think I remember that it was it made them kill themselves. Well, that was it made it, them was commit it? suicide, and they oh, were. I think it was in the sixties. I think you mentioned the seventies. I'm sure it was, I went, when I read years oh. back, it was the sixties, and right. it was the BBC were terrified of being responsible for a spate of suicides amongst you know depressed teenagers right. or something. So. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Any other great titles? I'm going to force you to just come up with someone off the top of your head. Dan. Halloween free. Maya's light. <laughs> Gemma. I don't know. Um, terrifying trio. I don't. Could be nice. <laughs> Anything, Gareth? Um, no, the title's the problem. I think if it's not called Halloween Three, it doesn't get made. Mm. Because it's called yeah. Halloween Three, it, it 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 dies very quickly and kills off the anthology idea. Mm. So you can see that Sam Hain, maybe you know, you could have kept coming up with a different name for Halloweeny Halloween. kind of festival, but it's, it's a bit weak, really. Yeah, I, and there is now, I think, a straight-to-video franchise called yeah. Sam Hain. Yeah. John Carpenter presents Sam Hain mm-hmm. would probably be about the strongest hand, but yeah, yeah, it's a problem. And how about you, Dave? What do you think the title should be? Well, <laughs> okay, I, I, I'll admit, I think I nicked this from online, saw it suggested online in a forum probably ten years ago, but did you see the homeless guy? I think it was Starker, his name is in the film. He's He goes wanders off shouting this is going to be the last Halloween damn you cocker and the last ha- this is going to be the last Halloween so I think I've seen a lot of online support for the last Halloween um, I know you suggested I know you suggested the Halloween 3 yeah I know that was I think Kim Newman's suggestion was it wasn't it on the he does the mention it on the commentary maybe uh, uh, he certainly says that this is well, the Halloween yeah. 3 and they're in the script because because Nigel Neal did write the first ever sequel literally the first ever sequel that had a number in it which was Grace Mass 2 and that movie has a rocket in it called Quatermass 2 because he obviously thought it can't just be the number of the of the film. I've got to. There's got to be a logical reason for it. So he created that whole Hollywood trend. Back in the 70s, you had things like Airport 70. Was it Airport 75? Mm, yes. How about Halloween 83? If the idea was going to be that would have been better. Every yeah, year, yeah. there's going to be a new, yeah. brand new edition. Yeah. If you like, you could have Halloween 3, 83, like Halloween American 84. John Atkins versus Halloween. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, hello again, everyone. It's Dan here, um, present day Dan in 2020, once again joined by Kirsty. Hello. Smashing. So, I hope everybody enjoyed that very, very in depth look at um, a, a rather interesting film. I think we probably won't have to say anything else about that film ever again. I think it's possibly all been said. So I don't, I don't know about the listener, but I feel purged. Um, <laughs> we had some recommendations last week of films that were coming up on streaming and on um, UK TV and things like that. And also, Kirsty, you had a recommendation for a short film. Um, mm-hmm, I an, did an untitled short film by the director Rob Savage which um, is available online and which we included a link to it in our post for our previous episode. I've now watched it. I listened to you watch it. Uh, Well, so you did. Um, And so I want to say thank you. Um, It's okay. And and also, oh my God. Um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah. Wow, that was amazing. This this short film is, it's a lockdown-based piece of horror 
fiction. Um, it's yeah. only about two minutes long, but it's really incredibly effective. Um, I know, Kirsty, that you, you're very familiar with Rob's work because he used to be one of your students. Yeah. Um, so I, I wonder if you want to tell us a little more about the film. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I can only really... Uh, kind of just elaborate on the kind of very vague discussion that happened I think last week and we talked about some of his other uh, his other work but um, what was weird is is as we were kind of discussing um, and I discovered it last week which I think was Wednesday afternoon um, it kind of catapulted into the kind of realms of viral um, kind of uh, notoriety very shortly after um, and was picked up by um, uh, you know kind of places like um, Unilad and the, and the AV Club um, and they were kind of reporting on it and then the daily mirror i think did some yes the daily mirror as well or mirror online i think um also picked up on it and very much kind of framed it as you know kind of guy pranks his friends um on zoom yeah so basically for anyone who's not seen it i'll just sum it up very quickly as saying it's a horror film based around a zoom call um uh because that's life at the moment um if you haven't seen it go watch it because I'm pretty sure that Kirsty and I will, will spoil it very quickly, because it is only about two minutes long. There's not a lot to discuss, but it is worth discussing. And it is available for free online, um, so I'd strongly encourage anyone to go watch it. It scared the hell out of me, um, I have to say. I think you can vouch for that, Kirsty. Yeah, I can. I can. I read it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the, the Daily Mirror in that article framed it as a prank that he played, because it's... Basically, the, the, I guess the narrative of the film is a bunch of friends talking on Zoom. Yeah. And one of them says, I've been hearing noises from my attic. Um, and they encourage him to go and look in the attic in case it's whatever it is. And he goes and something something grabs him. And it's um, quite, uh, quite shocking. But the way the Daily Mirror framed it was that they said it was actually a prank that Rob, being a filmmaker, he'd set it all up and played this prank on his friends. Yeah. Um, and it does kind of seem a bit like that when you watch it because their reactions seem very spontaneous and genuine. But I'm assuming that they were all acting and it was all scripted. Well, I... Mm, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, so Rob Rob had... Um, so if you look at his kind of Twitter feed and stuff, he, you know, kind of even up to the kind of beginning of lockdown... Um, you know, kind of starts laying this idea of kind of hearing things uh, in the attic as sort of, you know, kind of to to, to lay the groundwork. Um, and one of the things that he did um, kind of on social media um, after the kind of film was um, he shared um, a sort of trial run that he'd done with his girlfriend. Oh, okay. Um, who is, you know, who they are, you know, kind of currently separated um, in physically, not physically, romantically. Right. Um, but uh, as a sort of kind of trial run. Um, so she's involved in the, she's uh, another f- a filmmaker called Kate Heron. Um, she's one of the kind of the, um, the, the members of the kind of Zoom call. Um, and the rest I understand are kind of you know, Rob's friends. So it is a kind of, it is a prank in that. I think, you know, from what I understand, most of them, if not all of them, except for Kate, didn't know. Um, although, you know, if you're friends with Rob, you know he's a horror director. And, you know, <laughs> there's that kind of, I think there's certainly kind of few of them who are like, yeah, is this real? Um, yeah. So, you know, the kind of reactions are, you know, genuine. Um, but what's interesting about it is that actually the kind of, the the, the moment, the jump scare bit is actually um, f- uh, taken from another film, um, which is, have you seen Wreck, the Spanish kind of? 
Yes, yes. I recently watched it. You know, The Thing. I don't want to say any more. Okay. <clears throat> it's actually taken from that film. Right. Um, and kind of cut in. Um, so, again, he's not been terribly, I think, forthcoming about the actual construction of it. But there's, uh, I know there was some discussion about at a certain point he starts playing, you know, kind of putting in a kind of, you know, pre-recorded feed into the Zoom call rather than it being live. Right. So these are questions to be asked, <laughs> but uh, certainly, you know, it's kind of, you know, uh, beautifully timed for the, for the beginning of this podcast, I think. Um, and, has, you know, certainly kind of raised his profile. Um, he's also, um, you know, kind of he's done, I was talking last week, he's done some lots of shorts. Um, he's moving more into to television. So he directed an episode of, I think, the Channel 4 series, I think it's called True Horror couple of years ago all right um and um he did um the last few episodes of sky's um se uh, second season of britannia with david morrissey um and he's now i think working on or developing um will be working as a director i think as part of an, an amc anthology series which I believe is called Soulmates or something, something like that. Um, apologies, Rob, if you listen, and I got, I've got it wrong. Um, so <clears throat> you certainly want to keep an eye on. I yeah, think. good on Rob. No, it's, it's a brilliant piece of work. Yeah. And um, possibly, possibly frightened me even more than Wreck did. Because Wreck is pretty frightening. Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> and, and I'm really interested by the, um, you know, I don't even really know the, the technical craft that would go into feeding pre-recorded material into a Zoom call but making it seamless so that the people on the other end of the call wouldn't know that they were no longer seeing live. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I'm not entirely great. sure, that, but that was certainly kind of uh, a, a, an impression that I got. It's brilliantly edited yeah. in terms of the pace of everybody's reaction and the way that you know, it cuts from one close up to another and from a point mm. of view shot and, and things like that. Just perfectly done. By the way, I think um, unless you know one, I think this film doesn't have a title, does it? I think we should say that. No, I don't think it does have a title at the moment. Just kind of exists as a thing, um, which is probably quite appropriate, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's wonderful. And um, I think it clearly has this kind of found footage, you know, approach in terms of, you know, here's a character with a camera and they are recording. Um, but increasingly, of course, that that kind of found footage, those kind of tropes have been, you know, are being reinterpreted for sort of social media age films. I've not seen, I'm not going to say I've not seen Searching. No, I really wanted to see that. I feel like it was almost not released in this country, in the UK. Yeah, I think, it's on, I think it's on Sky Movies or right. Now TV if you have the movie package. Um, okay. But certainly, certainly it was. Um, but so it's going to be interesting to sort of see how those, um, you know, kind of tropes of, you know, fan footage horror of people with video cameras, you know, kind of are increasingly fed through this social media kind of lens. Well, there was Unfriended as well, wasn't there? There was, but Unfriended was um, kind of... The reviews were a little bit um, underwhelmed and I feel like it was trying to use that medium as a cash-in. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't really that interested in checking it out. But um, the things that I read about searching suggested that it actually used the kind of found footage via social media angle in a cinematically interesting way that kind of worked as a thriller. So I'd, I'd really like to see that. And yeah, it's not a horror film. But, um, you know, it's a thriller, so it'd be suspenseful and tense, and I'd love to see how those formal elements are kind of used 
in the film to tell a story and to keep you involved. Particularly through that, the way in which a kind of fixed position within the kind of formal execution of the film, the perspective of the camera, you know, might create create something more like a kind of distance between, you know, us as a viewer and the kind of characters on screen. Um, but, you know, I think it's it'll, be, it'll clearly become more of a thing, won't it? And I think the kind of... You know, it depends on how long the kind of lockdown goes on for. But I think we can expect to see more filmmakers kind of drawing on the kind of anxieties of lockdown and the kind of way in which we were able to connect with each other on social media as a kind of space for, you know, kind of uh, thrilling and horrific narratives. Yeah, I think we are going to see much more of that. And I think that it's interesting because uh, it's a direct opposition to the the way that technology has kind of been leading film you know i think because cameras and lighting equipment have become so much more compact and advanced the camera tends to move a lot in films there's a lot of handheld Mm. stuff um whereas you're kind of switching to a medium where by nature the camera has to be fixed you can't follow the characters around so that's going to lead to its own kind of development of uh you know the tropes of horror yeah absolutely well Thanks for that recommendation, Kirsty. It's okay. So, uh, on that note, let's think about any recommendations we have of stuff that people can access in the next week or so. I tend to draw my recommendations from the Horror Channel, so apologies to uh, any listeners outside of the UK. Um, I guess these recommendations are only really useful to UK-based listeners who've got Freeview. Um, On the Horror Channel on uh, Monday the 4th of May in the middle of the night so it's about half past two so actually technically i suppose it's the morning of tuesday the fifth um there is the 1958 film revenge of frankenstein the revenge of frankenstein um starring peter cushing as kirsty knows and the list and will have gathered by now i i love peter cushing movies um this is a really good one it's the first sequel to the curse of frankenstein which came out in 1957 um, the, which was the original kind of uh, gothic horror movie hit from Hammer Studios. Um, you don't really need to have seen The Curse of Frankenstein to, to get The Revenge of Frankenstein. It's a really good story on its own. It's beautifully made. But if you do happen to be an Amazon Prime subscriber, uh, The Curse of Frankenstein is on Amazon Prime at the moment. So you could possibly have a little bit of a double bill um, of those. They're very satisfying movies. They're both written by Jimmy Sangster and directed by Terence Fisher. And they're low budget filmmaking, but just absolutely luscious, beautifully photographed by Jack Asher, uh, both movies. And they're both kind of interesting, different takes on the kind of Frankenstein story. Um, you know, obviously, Frankenstein, uh, the Mary Shelley novel, is possibly the most adapted most influential text of all time. It's been made into so many movies, um, but Curse of Frankenstein is probably my favourite version of it. And The Revenge of Frankenstein is kind of a spin on it. it. It kind of uses some ideas from the book that they didn't use in their version of the original story. Like the the creature in um, Shelley's story is um, an articulate kind of tragic figure, whereas in a lot of the movies, including Curse of Frankenstein, it's more of a monster, but in Revenge of Frankenstein, there is a, they bring the tragedy element back. The creature is very movingly played by an actor called Michael Gwynn. Both films have an absolutely uh, searing, beautiful 
performance by Cushing. His version of Baron Frankenstein is one of the most interesting sort of anti-heroes. Well, he's not an anti-hero. He's a villain. He's he's a horrible person in Cushing's interpretation. Um, but the movies kind of revolve around this um, villainous figure and... And and there's something kind of compelling about him and attractive about him, despite the fact that he's horrible. Um, I think that's uh, really interesting and makes the films fascinating. I think he gets to show several sides of that character in, in those two movies. And um, there are loads of other great performances in them as well. They're, they're, they're timeless. So I'd strongly recommend Revenge if you can see it. And if you have Amazon Prime and you can watch Curse beforehand... That's even better. They are genuinely a great double bill, um, and they're quite short films because they are from the fifties. So, you know, only about an hour and twenty minutes, but they're in full colour and and they're just basically works of art, in my opinion. So, um, hopefully, that was fulsome enough as recommendations go. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, actually, you've convinced me. I'm going to find the them on the schedule and record them. Um, one of the things I found. Um, over the last sort of couple of weeks ago, is I just discovered. Have you seen Talking Pictures TV? Oh yes, it's wonderful. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? And it's it's quite I have to say quite soothing. Um, so um, if you're not familiar with Talking Pictures TV, it's a it's a kind of British um, film um, channel that very much kind of um, you know specialises in showing very uh, kind of old films and kind of um, lots of old TV as well. Yes, and yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I found there's a kind of quiet lulling nostalgia of you know kind of sitting with a cup of tea and um my cross stitching um and watching um you know some of these films or just having them on in the background um so i think i might you know kind of find those two and sort of maybe slightly up my my game maybe slightly less lulling but your descriptions of of the beauty of those films are certainly very uh, enticing Oh, it's interesting just you talking about the kind of the way in which kind of Cushing's uh, Baron Frankenstein is kind of, you know, compelling, um, but, you know, obviously kind of despicable. Um, and one of my, my first picks is just looking through Netflix and looking at what kind of what's available and what I might recommend to people who've not seen it before. So um, uh, Netflix has uh, not at all to link to last week's recommendation. Um, Jonathan Demme's um, Silence of the Lambs is on. Um, so, again, if you've not seen that film if you've not seen it in a while um i do i would suggest that lock time is a perfect <laughs> to, to revisit um anthony hopkins um uh yeah version of hannibal lecter um and obviously jodie foster who is amazing in that film um so that's up there i didn't know it was uh yeah. the other film i picked out which i love as a horror fan and a hot fan of horror cinema i love 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 um drew goddard and joss whedon's the cabin in the woods have you seen... Oh, you know what? Um, I, I've been wanting to watch The Cabin in the Woods since it was made, and I never have. I've got it recorded. You should. Um, I, I, I so need to see it, but I think I've been saving it. You know, some people have, have described it as maybe the best horror film of the last decade. Well, it's, I think it's a divisive film. I think what I found is that people either love it or they hate it, and, and, and you know, it, it kind of... For me, it doesn't matter which which way you res respond, but I think it's a really clever film in if you're a fan of horror because it's clearly all about horror films, about different types of horror films, about how horror operates, and and ultimately, what's kind of the the ending is a kind of little bit out there and a little bit bleak, but I think ultimately kind of offers a bit of a commentary on why we need horror. 
in our lives, why we need kind of horror films, what it what okay. sociological need it fulfills. So, um, but it is hilarious, um, very, very funny. And in the middle of it all, it is um, uh, Bradley Whitford um, and Richard Jenkins oh, yes. um, delivering very Joss Whedon dialogue. Um, and it's utterly ridiculous and very funny um, and quite horrific uh, in times. And, you know, if you're... If you're a fan of horror, you'll probably sit there and kind of go, oh, yeah, that's a reference to that and to that and to that, you know, kind of picking out all the, the way it's nodding towards different um, oh, horror films. I think it's about time that I did it. So in that vein as well, I'd like to just kind of just jump on the back of that and looking on Amazon Prime. Um, mm. Amazon Prime has 13 seasons of Supernatural so if you've not done that and you have the time, <laughs> then it might be a good time for you to kind of uh, equate yourself with Supernatural. So Supernatural, um, for those of you who don't know, which I'm, I'm sure probably a few people, um, not many, um, was, uh, you know, an American um, network television show sort of born out of the kind of death of Buffy in that, you know, it kind of arose as uh, just as Buffy or just shortly after Buffy ended. And so it was very much kind of going after that slightly kind of young adult teen audience um it's about two brothers who are kind of demon hunters and they travel around america um fighting demons and stuff um and uh you know kind of 14 seasons allows them to cover a lot of ground and to tackle some quite big subjects but i think the earlier seasons for me are the kind of the most joyful in that they are you know a monster a week you know kind of often uh knowing nods to you know kind of films from horrors canon um some episodes are bizarre some are hilarious and some are absolutely creepy okay so if you yeah if you're not familiar with supernatural um i would recommend that you know it would be a good time to start i did start watching it when it when it was newish yeah um and i thought it was okay maybe because of the monster of the week thing which i do um appreciate i actually prefer um, kind of dramas that give you individual stories rather than long-running arcs as a mm. as a rule, but um, I just kind of let it go a bit easily. I don't think I got through the first season. So um, to to kind of uh, is there an episode that you would recommend that that kind of would get me back into it or that just needs to be seen? Oh, well, there were so many actually, um, but there's one really early on. I always say really, I think it might be sort of season three, season four, which is sort of around about the time of the writer's strike. If you remember the writer's strike. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Which is called, let me see if I can find it. Um, I think it's, it's well, it's the, the episode itself kind of focuses on a kind of uh, sort of faux, slightly jokey um, ghost hunting team, which is not our ghost hunting team, um, it, but a kind of, you know, kind of group of nerds who are doing okay. a sort of most haunted thing. Um, and the episode is called, I want to say it's called, uh, go, yeah, they're called, it's called Ghost Faces. All right. Okay. <laughs> ghost Faces. It's really funny it's a clearly a kind of take on you know that kind of type of reality television and then it goes to something quite dark as well um so that's that's one i would uh would strongly recommend i shall check that out i shall have that's my lockdown rotation yes. oh brilliant kirsty and and um i agree wholeheartedly with your recommendation of science of the lambs as well i've been wanting to rewatch that for well years and years and just never got round to it i think um 
I've seen it's a film that I've seen a lot but I really would like to read the book and then watch the film again a few years ago I read the book of the um, precursor uh, Red Dragon yeah um, and, and really enjoyed that so I thought I really need to read the, the sequel novel and then look at the film again yeah, I mean, there's some really great on... I mean, this is the, one of the great things, I think, if you're interested in film um, in a digital media age, is YouTube is, you know, fantastic for, you know, um, video essays, deconstructions of films, and there's some really lovely ones of uh, Silence of the Lambs in terms of its use of editing, particularly. Yeah, it's it's a, a meticulously crafted film, isn't it? So Yeah. So thank you very much, Kirsty. I think that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you. Um, what a pleasure it's been once again. So... We'll be back here next week, and next week we're going to be joined by our friend Stella. Um, she made a contribution to last week's episode in the form of a recorded material, but this time she'll be joining us live, and we're going to be doing the first of a series of um, episodes that we discussed before where we'll be discovering or rediscovering movies that we should have seen or should know better than, than we do. And in this case, it's going to be uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria from 1977, which I have never seen. Um, and also we'll be talking about its, its more recent remake. I think, Kirsty, you said you'd seen it a long time ago, but can't remember much. Well, vague, vague recollections. <laughs> right, OK. And I think Stella's in the same boat. So um, so we're, we're all going to dive into Suspiria over the next few days and then yep. come back and talk about it next week and I'm very exciting we'll say goodbye then for once again um i'm td velasquez although you can call me dan and i'm kirsty warrow <laughs> just you can call me kirsty <laughs> it's our pleasure we'll see you here or, or you'll hear us here next week bye bye indeed bye you have been listening to and now the podcast starts Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Kirsty Warrow, T.D. Velasquez, and Howard Whittock. With special guests, Steve Timms, Spider Dan, Dave Moore, Daniel Butt, Gemma Taylor, Gareth Kavanagh, Steve Kane, and Peter Slater. Special thanks... To Greg Hume for our original theme music, and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law, and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com, for more content and contact details or visit our Facebook pages at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash AndNowPodcast. And now the podcast stops.